Running is one of our oldest tools, and it's there for all of us at our disposal to feel. And feeling is free, and feeling is freedom. It's a way to throw off all our pressures and all our expectations and all the sort of like lies that other people have sold us and all the lies that we tell ourselves, all our self-hatred and our self-doubt and all our minimizing whack relationships and bad dates and like mistakes that we've made in the past, whether that was last night or last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, running as a chance to, to do something new. And so that is rebellion when given the choice between running and succumbing to that vortex. That's Knox Robinson, and this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Today we're going to talk about running culture, but what specifically do we mean when we use that phrase? What are we trying to connote or convey by virtue of those words? And I would imagine, I would suspect that the definition is going to vary depending upon who you talk to, where that person is coming from. For example, Sanjay Rawal's perspective on running culture, well, that's gonna differ a little bit from that of say, I don't know, somebody like Usain Bolt, for example. But if you ask Knox Robinson, his definition of running culture is gonna have very little to do with things like splits and podiums and everything to do with this idea of movement as art form movement running as poetry and politics, as this expression of both individuality and community. And I would say that in fact, for Knox, running is an act of rebellion. My name is Rich Roll, this is my podcast. And today, today I'm basically ecstatic to share what I think is one of the more intimate and one of the more profound conversations that I've had. It's a conversation that is fundamentally about running, of course, but also about so much more. Based in New York City, Knox isn't just a great runner. He isn't just a great coach and a great writer. He isn't just the co-founder and captain of the Black Roses NYC Run Collective, which we're gonna talk about today. It's this crew of tattooed amateur New York City runners who routinely gather to hammer out intervals through downtown Manhattan and then go eat ramen and spin vinyl and drink beers. This is a guy who, when asked to describe himself, quoted the poet Amiri Baraka, quote, I am a long breast singer, would be dancer, strong from years of fantasy and struggle, end quote. And I think, uh, I think I'd agree that that quote rather beautifully captures the essence of this, this ardent purveyor of running culture, how he thinks and how he lives. And this is also a guy who after a collegiate running career at Wake Forest, stepped away from the sport altogether for the better part of a decade. He went on to study black literature and poetry. He pursued a career as a spoken word artist. He worked in the music industry, managing artists, and he served as editor in chief of Fader, which is 
kind of the ultimate print vortex of hip hop, indie music, urban style and culture. And it wasn't until Knox's son was born that, that he basically rediscovered running and this new life, uh, creative expression and community building through running uh, began to unfold. A few more things I wanna mention about Knox before we, uh, we immerse ourselves in his world, but first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? 
Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. All right, we did it. We got through that. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. I love my sponsors. I really do believe in all the products that I mention and their support and more importantly, your support of them makes the show possible. So gratitude. So this conversation spends very little time in the shallow end of the pool. Uh, Knox is deep, his story is compelling, his storytelling even better. Uh, I did my best to keep pace with his insights. And uh, I'm not sure what else needs to be said other than that I just love everything about this exchange. And I think I'm just gonna leave it at that. Uh, I was very moved by this human and I think you will be too. Cool, let's do this. Nox, man, great to uh, great to meet you. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we're in a like a little rental conference room here. It's a little bit echoey, but we're just gonna have to live with it, man. No, this is cool. This is like I think it'll be good. Yeah, slide up on that a little bit more like that. And I wish usually when I when I do these at home, I video them now. I've mm-hmm. been, been capturing them on film. Now I wish I had a video camera so we could all see what you're wearing right now. Cause like, I don't know what that is, but you're rocking some serious fashion. It's humid today. So I made sure I had to wear like an African shirt just to yeah. like breathe out a little bit. I know. And what was the, what you, what you were wearing? Like a, like a, I don't even know what I would call it. Like a shawl or like a, there, some kind of wrap. There's the, yeah, there's, there's, I got it in Japan on this last trip. I was over there and, uh, you know, there's a technical name for it. I'm not going to call it a kimono because it's not. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's definitely, and it's, nor is it a yukata, which is like the summer kind of like wrap full length, but it's like a two-piece linen, you know, like 
it's kind of like a Japanese version of in the hood, what you call a short set, <laughs> like uh-huh. the baseball short yeah, set. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's linen and not as breathable as you'd think. So I'm a little saucy after walking around today. Well, I think it's thematically consistent. You're wearing an undergarment that's African and outer garment that's Japanese. And I think that, that that's fitting given mm-hmm. that you, you, for me, like represent you're like the the this person who's right at the the vortex, like the eye of the storm, at the intersection between running, culture, art, poetry, music, politics, like all of these threads kind of inform everything that you're about and everything that you do and how you express yourself. Vortex is the right word, right? Because <laughs> yeah. the vortex is intense. And uh, and can be crushing. An intersection is just kind of like Robert Johnson, like sticking his thumb out, waiting for the devil to come by mm-hmm. to sell his soul, so he could like <clears throat> right. Uh, that's a passive. Yeah, yeah, like I'm I'm cool. Like crossroads, I'm cool with. The intersection, I'm cool with. But a vortex, definitely, when you bring in all those axes together, it can it can be a lot. And uh, <clears throat> but at the same time, once it's like part and parcel of how you literally see things and how you interpret things, it's at least for me, it's tough to think about a really hard run um, without like certain lines of poetry coming up, mm-hmm. you know, or like a forgettable country music lyric that you wish you never learned coming up, <laughs> you know? So it's these things all exist inside of us. Um, and so it's difficult to distinguish. It's like that old Chinese chestnut about Zhuangzi. Um, <clears throat> once was dreaming, had a dream about being a butterfly. And then when he awoke, he didn't know if he was like a man who had had a dream about being a butterfly or if he was a butterfly now dreaming that he was a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tough to really know if running is like uh, everything and it makes me think about poetry or if I'm like running a lot because I'm a failed poet, you know? Mm. (laughs) Well, I think any one of those kind of topic headings is something that can either... Uh, well, I was going to say can unify us. I think they can also, I mean, with politics, they can also divide us, but poetry, music, and certainly running, these are, these are like things that we can all share in kind of a collective um, consciousness that bring us together, right? If that's a consistent thing. And you use running really not just, it's, it's interesting because you know, you're a coach and, and, you know, you're a 230 marathoner and like a 110 half, half marathon. I mean, you're a fast runner and, you know, in your club, you've got people who are interested in performance, but it's not really about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tricky because, um, man, you could sit people in, in black roses down, you know, at the Mexican spot after a, a session and yeah, the conversation doesn't really like always kind of lean or tack towards racing or performance and certainly not it's so refreshing yeah (laughs) yeah right because i know you know you've been with where it's not like that it's all about you know splits and your garmin and strava and all that nonsense yeah um especially rather than like the people uh that i've been hanging out with it's more like different eras of time like i feel like as a youth in the 90s i feel like i learned um, 
formally, I learned a lot about running and uh, multi-sport activities from like an empirical perspective, just because of a couple of coaches. And it was that era of like data, that nineties kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and yeah, you've seen that kind of come back and forth in different eras, but like what I love now is actually the weird friendships I have with elites and gold medalists and silver medalists or world champs or whatever, um, is actually super similar to the relationship I have with just everyday passionate athletes. And like these people aren't really taking that empirical thing and pushing it all the way Mm -hmm. out. I mean, I, you know, I was training with, or hang staying in Mo Farah's camp. Yeah, no, I I want to get into this. You you were training. It's okay. You can say it. I'll say it for you. It was prepositional, you know, like I was training around like, you know, next Uh behind. Definitely wasn't like training with Mo Farah, but Um, you know, his training partner, Abdi did invite me out to the camp. And so I was afforded this opportunity to go out to the camp and stay for three weeks in Addis Ababa. Yeah. Yeah. With the guys, um, man, these guys weren't talking about no science, no marginal gains. You know, it was like arsenal transfer rumors, um, you know, Virgil shoot Virgil off white releases Uh and, uh, and then their sessions, how they organize their sessions. This is like to watch, you know, one of the greatest runners of all time, like at the office is, is crazy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, it really took me back and then I so learned So walk stuff. me through that. Like, yeah. I want to hear more about that experience of, be, I mean, you're here, you're with, you know, two of the best guys in the world and the guys they train with who are also, you know, you've never heard of these guys, but they're probably, you know, some of the best runners in the world. Sure. They live a very simple life. Their approach to training is regimented, but also very, um, I don't know what the right word is. You, you, you would know it better than I, but um, it's, it's sort of a, uh, a natural flow approach to how it's based on feel as much as anything else, right? Which is so what you would not think in this quantified self era that we find ourselves in right now. Feel is the only thing that's going to get you through. I mean, when you're standing on the starting line of the New York City Marathon, and whether you're in the front line or you're in the back, like, no watch is going to, like, get you through. No data, no Britney Spears power song playlist is going to, like, uh-huh. get you through. you got to know what's inside of you. you got to know what you what you got. And, and if you like look at these elites when it comes time to battle, when it comes time to go for the gold or to, to grasp that cup... Like they're reaching inside for something that they have. They know it's there and they know they're confident that like other people don't have it, you know, uh, in some ways. Otherwise, they're sometimes they're just like reaching for theirs and going for it. And you can just see that that's what the preparation is. Like how much weightlifting can you do, you know? But mm-hmm. when you see someone enacting a plan at the Olympics on the last lap or in the final round, you're like, it's... It's uh, incontrovertible to see them do that because, you know, they've been preparing for that move, one move for three years. Right. Like when Galen and Mo did that, like in the last lap of the 10,000 in London, you know, they had been, you could just tell they had been talking about that for every day for three years. Right. So when you're there in Ethiopia and you're watching these guys train, like, you know, what is it? Tell me what that, that experience is like. It's a major freak out because 
Like, you're, you're like, what am I doing? You yeah. get to do, you have a cool life, man. You get yeah. to go and, and like hang with some pretty badass people. Yeah, it's, it's cool until you're like in the, this is like everything <laughs> yeah, I've ever done. It's like, yeah. this was a cool idea until right. like, then you're in the mix. I mean, like, honestly, yeah. <laughs> everything I've ever done is like, oh yeah, this will be cool. And then you're in it and you're like, what? Uh-huh. And that was even this last trip to Ethiopia. Like, how it even happened was absurd, you know, like it was just to backtrack. It was, uh, before the New York city marathon, I rode out with the sub elites. I like skirted into the sub elite bus. Uh-huh. Um, but the sub elite bus gets the same near the same treatment as the elites and everybody's chill. So nobody really cares. So we go out to the start line on these elite buses. Um, we're held in like a, a complex, a warm-up track indoors. We have all the same amenities. And it's like, well, I go and do my meditation. I'm on my headspace wave. I'm doing uh-huh. me. And then I have all this time to kill. And I'm like, well, I'm not friends with any of these local elites from New York who like all work on Wall Street and like have like sharp haircuts and are like mm-hmm. on there. It's just a big cultural gap. Um, so I was like, let me just go sit by the brothers. <laughs> <laughs> You know, who cares? And uh, it was Meb, his last uh, last right. race, you know, um, Abdi, Cameron, who won, um, uh, Wilson Kipsang had mm-hmm. jumped in after dropping out of Berlin. So I was like, all right, I know some of these guys at whatever level. And then Abdi is super chill. So I'm hanging out, just trying to mind my own business. I'm not trying to fraternize, whatever. And Abdi's like, hey, man, um, why don't you come out to Ethiopia? Uh, I'm going to be there with Mo helping him get ready for the London marathon. I was like, yeah, cool. Yeah. You don't, you don't say no to that. So you're trying to be all cool about it. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, yeah, cool. And he was uh-huh. just trying to be cool. He was just trying to make conversation in front of his friends yeah. with like the regular homie from New York. He was trying to like have common with his New York homie right. in front of the other guys. Right, like, right, right. I know New York. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yo, What's up? Hey man. Um, come on out. Oh yeah. Cool. I will. I just showed up. <laughs> yeah. And you were there for a couple of weeks, right? I was there for like three weeks. Uh-huh. Cause I'm not going to go. I mean, you know, you got to go and you got to, uh, right. you got to take the whole trip, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, like one, one of the first experiences and apologies for being a little discursive, but one of the first experiences I had with, uh, going to an elite camp, um, I was friends with Leo Manzano. Um, and Trenier Moser and, and folks in that John Cook group in the, <clears throat> in the days leading up to the 2012 Olympics. And uh, I was starting this running magazine. It was going to be yeah. cool. And I was used to coming from like that journalistic practice of like the fly in 36 hours, get the story. I'm out. Right. You know? And um, so I was like, yo, Leo, I don't want to disturb the camp. I'm just going to come in photographer, take some pictures. I'm starting this magazine. And he's like, Hey man, well, um, why don't you come and just stay the whole time? He's like, you know, you might learn something about running. And I was like, <laughs> yo, bro, I'm starting a magazine uh, about running. Like, what are you trying to like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously I know about running or I thought I did. And yeah, he just, it was just such the face punch that I just went to like altitude in Mexico and like live with, Leo, you know, in this cycle before he got the silver in London. Wow. You know, so you got to like call people's bluff, 
You know what I mean? Well, also just to embrace the the experience rather than like the result of like, okay, how am I going to get a story out of this and just be, Yeah, you know? I mean, that's always like a journalist dream when I worked as a, a journalist uh, and as an editor at this, uh, like a kind of fader, right? Fader you were editor in chief of fader in chief of the. That's the such fader. a badass job, man. It you, was, there's so many layers to your life. It you had to I had to treat it like it was a badass job. I mean, it was badass. Yeah. Um, you got to interview Kanye. I was did Kanye's first cover. <clears throat> like, yeah. I mean, wild anecdotes about Kanye. Right. Early on. Um, <clears throat> A lot, of, a lot of folks in that time. And yeah, I had to treat it like it was a badass thing. Obviously, that's how you sow the seeds of your own dismissal. <laughs> so I did, uh, I, I was, you know, run out of town on a rail after a while. But what, what are you going to do? Like go and be editor in chief and then like play it safe? Or are you going to go and just like start lighting yeah. shit on fire on the first day? Oops. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're at these elite running camps, like what are the, you know, what's a day in the life of these elite runners in, in Ethiopia? Well, it, everything's disorienting, right? Like with, with in Mo's camp, like all the easy runs were done in complete silence in like almost like military, like martial regimentation. Um, it was really tense. And then when they'd go to like these epic workouts on the track with the coach and the pacers and like all the gear laid out on the track and multiple spike changes and all the fueling and the hydration, I showed up to like check out this epic workout and he's playing like a Drake playlist off a, uh, off a beats pill or something, Uh you know? And I was like, first of all, how can you listen to Drake and then perform? Like Drake is like, that makes you soft, yo. That, <laughs> you listen to Drake, you're texting your girl like, I miss you. This dude was like turned up listening to Drake. I was uh-huh. like, okay, who knew? So he's turned up listening to Drake and he's just like obviously tearing through his pacers. And of course his pacers are like Olympians. His best pacer, Bashir, just got a silver medal at the European Championships yeah. a couple weeks ago. Abdi, obviously, the, all these young guys. So yeah, it was like listening to Drake and like having a good time. And then halfway through the session, I'm just like on the sidelines. And he's like, mate, could you go in my bag? And um, could you take some pictures on my phone? You know, just so I could have them later for Instagram. And then he gave me like the password to his phone. Right. I was like, <laughs> this, this guy uh-huh. that y'all, all this around this guy. And like, he asked me to go in his bag, take out the phone, gave me the password and then asked me to take pictures. Yeah, that's crazy. So, so what of do course, you make I'm, of I'm a New Yorker. I was mad that he had the better phone. Like, all I cared about oh. was like, I knew I should have got the iPhone. He's got I the knew. 10 or something. He did. He had two 10s. <laughs> and I, I was like, I didn't want to get the 10 before I went because I didn't want to break it mm-hmm. or lose it or get robbed. So then I show up and like, Mo has two 10s. Right. Humiliating. Yeah, but he's Mo. Yeah, but still, I'm from New York. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously you'd think it would be the other way around. Like the easy runs would be jocular and they'd be telling jokes and having a good time and, and then super serious on the track. So, you know, what do you take from that? Like, what is it about their approach that's different from our approach and, and how is this, you know, feeling and benefiting them in a way that maybe we're missing? Man, it was so basic as to almost be embarrassing, but just the whole idea, the, the training is going to be what it is the competitions are going to be as intense as you'd imagine they're going to be. That level is so rarefied. I was almost embarrassed to like watch these guys create a good vibe and like that 
leveled up the performance. I mean, the Drake and then a whole training camp of just your friends, your homies, and it's all banter and arguing and like screaming at each other when they're messing up the pace and like yelling at each other from across the track. It was just like, it was incredible. And I was like, whoa, just creating the vibe just creates in turn this mindset, this whole energy field, you know? What I mean, they call it collective efficacy, you know? Um, But it was wild to watch, you know? And they don't know what their workout's gonna be until they tell the day, right? Well, that's another thing too that I have observed that from like my own training with elites or being around elites, but also my training partner where I live up in the woods um, outside of New York City is went to two Olympic trials in the marathon in the in the 90s. And uh, when I first met him moving up to this town, he's the truck driver guy, right? Bus driver, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, great, great athlete, great, great uh, lifelong competitor <laughs> to this day. Um, but I, I just moved to the town to like hide out from New York. Um, Dude didn't know who I was. The guys in the little training crew didn't know. They they never asked what I did. They didn't care. And I just showed up at the track on Tuesday, like when when they said to show up, and just proceeded to get it cracking. And that mm-hmm. was amazing. Like, you know, in New York, everyone's always like in your business all the time. I saw you at this party. Who's making this money? Why'd you get fired from the fader? <laughs> you know. Um, but like up there, it was just about like lacing up and 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 tearing up the track or like, you know, battling each other in a long run. And so that's similar to what I've seen in elites. Like you don't have to like have the three month training program. It's it's about that. So when I was out there with Mo, this day they're building up to the session and like coach had like dropped some red herrings, what it's gonna be. But the excitement, like the boyish excitement that Mo has like the night before a big run. Or like days in advance, he's like chomping at the bit, and there's like lights in his eyes. He's having a like, "What's it gonna be?" And the coach will just like fake him out or whatever, and he knows that's not it. Ah, no, okay, okay, cool. So you'd think I wasn't around all the time, so you'd think the coach had emailed him or whatever. Man, we were out at this one training grounds. They do their warm up, they do all the activations. I'm sitting next to the coach, and then after it's all over, Mo comes over and is like, "So what are we doing today?" And I was like. Oh, that's crazy. First of all, no one does that. These try hard runners out here, much respect to all the coaches out there on the internet sending immaculate plans, six months of a PDF, got it. But you gotta think what it means if Mo Farah is getting the workout in the moment. That that means obviously he spent the night thinking about it. He spent time narrowing down the possibilities for what it could actually be because he's trusting his coach, right? So let's say he narrows it down to three scenarios. So then he's played out all three workouts. That means he's already psychologically prepared for three different caustic scenarios. Mm -hmm. The coach chooses one and mows into it. But just think about what that means in competition. He's already cycled through, what, 90, 95% of like, He's had to visualize alternatives and then adapt in the moment. And sometimes that means he's racing Kipchoge, so he's thinking about that. But Mo probably might not even think about that. He might just think about, like, what could actually happen on the day, Mm -hmm. you know? 
That's real coaching though. You know, I think as much as we want to know, you know, every day what we're doing and have it all mapped out, like if you really want to perform at your peak, you got to be malleable and adaptable. And if you have a coach who really knows you, uh, that workout's going to change based on, you know, what that coach's perspective of how you're warming up. Like, you know, when they're, when you're totally in tune with your coach, the coach knows, you know, a good coach will know, okay, I got to back off or today's a day where I can really hit it hard and making those micro adjustments in the moment is a huge differentiator. And we're so programmed to want to know exactly what we're doing every single day. And when you get into that automaton kind of schedule or routine, you're, you're removing the possibility for some, you know, marginal to, to pretty huge performance gains by learning about that like mind-body connection. For sure. You know, the more experience you have, you're super experienced, you know, you don't need a coach, you know what you need. And I'm sure you adapt day to day based upon, you know, that, how that internal barometer that you have about like, what is going to best serve you? Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's almost like you can learn again, no disrespect to anyone's bookshelf out there, but you could learn a lot from like listening to jazz and reading poetry, you know, um, <clears throat> just because like you can read the same poem, short poem, like, over and over for 20 years. And then like on the 21st year, something's going to happen. We are going to understand like a, 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 another level of meaning to a word choice or like a line break or the rhythm in a line of poetry, just in the same way that, you know, this new John Coltrane, a new old John Coltrane album just came out over the summer. <clears throat> and it was the last time he, it was like his second attempt to go into the studio and record the energy of this amazing composition called mm -hmm. Impressions. Um, I think ultimately the analysis is he, he felt they were both attempts were failures, but man, you're thinking about like John Coltrane, like tried to capture this amazing live song in the studio, failed, went back and did it again. It's still an epic piece of recorded sound, but what are the aesthetic choices that he's like making not only on the day, but minute to minute. And <clears throat> that's more instructive for. For me, that's also very instructive for executing a marathon as much as, you know, reading about like, you know, whatever kind of like. Well, once you know the basics of what you need to do, right? With these new runners, though, they don't want to know the they, And I call it ABR, like people do anything but running. Uh -huh. And I'm like. Because <laughs> it's easier to sit around and procrastinate. Well, should I do this workout or should I do? And, and you trick yourself into thinking that you're actually doing something. Right. When I'm just, not. All right. I'm just going to do cryo instead. I'm just going to like lift weights instead. I'm just going to do this. And it, it honestly, I don't know. I'm not an expert. I'm not a certified coach, but. <laughs> If you go out to you Africa, a few things. If you go out to yeah. Africa, look, I'm just they saying, run. I'm just saying, yeah, what I saw was it comes down to hard long runs and it comes down to long tempos. Yeah. Like every, you got to build to those things. But like, I feel like a lot of new runners or emerging runners or a lot of like even experienced runners, they don't want to know that like, I, and I had to learn. I, and when I was living in New York, I was like blazing up these like 18 mile long runs and finishing all fast and like slapping high fives at the end with my homie and all that. Like 18 mile long run finishing fast on adrenaline ducking taxis. That's like the worst thing for your training because you get into a marathon. It ain't no taxis mm -hmm. and it ain't 18 miles. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. The long run, that's a different approach. Yeah. But I, I love this idea of 
of looking to completely other, completely different forms of expression to learn how to become a better runner. Like, and this idea of jazz is amazing because jazz is all about, like great jazz is about being present and listening, like being so tuned in to what is happening in the moment that you can respond with the appropriate note. And in many ways, that's kind of like what we're talking about with running, like that, that, that connection with self. So you know what the next step is. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> don't want to be ageist, but in that way, it is like sometimes like a, a, a game that you unlock with the intervening years. Like when I was a kid, my dad listened to jazz. I had a problematic relationship with my dad, so I hated jazz. <laughs> right. But I used to wonder, you know, when he was like listening to it. On and he was a runner too. He was a runner, right? So I was like, ah, right. <laughs> um, but I used to wonder how you could like tell who was playing an instrument just like listening to it. If there was, you couldn't tell by the sound of their voice. Now that's comes like almost second nature to me just cause I've listened to like a lot of music. Um, <clears throat> you'd never mistake Tupac's voice for Kanye West's mm -hmm. voice, you know, well, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, so in that sense, it's, it's interesting. So you're listening to voice, but then you're also thinking, you're also like unlocking like what they were trying to share. So you're experiencing that on your own, but then you're also thinking what they were trying to do in the moment as they are arranging it and recording it. And like, that's also a trip. There's just a lot of levels to it. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Well, let's, uh, I want to track it back. Yeah. Let's go back. Me. Let's go back to your problematic relationship with your dad. <laughs> he gets mad. He gets yeah. mad. He, he went to the doctor's office. The other day and was like, I was on the cover of like outside magazine. Uh -huh. So he was like, ah, yeah, the doctor's flipping out. Oh my God. Oh, I read this. I keep the copies in the office. That's your son. He's doctor flipping out. So my dad's like, yeah, let me go and read. And I did the usual thing where I just like diss my dad. Like, oh, in the article? <laughs> of course. Oh, no. <laughs> what am I going to be like? Yeah. Oh, he's, oh, you're not going to print. That's not printable. Oh, my dad's my greatest inspiration. Boring. Yeah. So I just was real. And then my dad's like, yo, why you got to like talk about my running so bad? I was like, well, you wasn't, you, you wasn't really putting it down. I thought you were, but you know, I was four. <laughs> yeah, but. When I see, I mean, I've read up on, you know, some of those articles and whatever your relationship was with your dad, you're very clear in saying like, you looked up to him, he was a hero, you got excited for his races. And, yeah. you know, he was all about, you know, he was all about running at that time. Sure. Um, I learned, yeah, I learned those early lessons from him. Not only like the community aspect, the vibe, like it's something you did with your homies, like on a on a Sunday or whatever, family's out or whatever. But also I learned <laughs> uh, the melancholy because like, you know, you think your dad's going to win the race, you're four or five. And then uh -huh. when he doesn't like win, then I was like distraught. What's wrong? What's wrong I was with you? Or embarrassed that my dad didn't win the race, but it, that, he was, he was a middle of the pack yeah. guy. So now I look back and I'm like, man, I was learning lessons early on. Like, Oh my God. Or if his best friend beat him, you know, and I had a crush on like the best friend's daughter, then it was like double heartbreak. Oh, like I got it. Yeah. Levels. <laughs> but you didn't take to running right away. No, I, I, uh, I had like, yeah, I had other pursuits uh -huh. and, uh, on an athletics level, cycling actually was one of my first passions. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I went deep. I, people asked me like how it, and I think, 
I saw the movie Quicksilver. Yeah, I remember that. Kevin Bacon of at course. his best. Yeah, of course. Which is tough to say because that's messenger. a lot of there's a lot of best yeah. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah. So it was Kevin Bacon, but in the beginning scene, he has that race impromptu race with the bike messenger. Yeah. The bike mess who flips him off and like spits on his cab in the end, right? The bike messenger was Nelson Vales, the Olympic medalist oh, I didn't know from that. the streets of New York, who uh-huh. started off as a bike messenger, went to the highest heights of competitive cycling on the track. Um, black dude, badass black dude. And I was like, yeah, that was like, that's what's up. Okay, so I got into cycling, got a beater bike, rode around my town, upgraded, upgraded, got into, you know, biathlons, didn't swim very well. Um, but then one summer <clears throat> I crashed and flatted in like all my races, like flipped, Peloton running me over and people are like, yo, you got to choose running because yeah. you're, you're losing too much blood. <laughs> right. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is gonna be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. 
We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. So that was it then. Mm -hmm. The the cycling career ended. Yeah, I still still love it. I still follow it. I still kind of like fantasize about it. I was like, ah, next big check. I'm going to go and get the 7-Eleven team bike. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just ride around on, in the 7-Eleven kit. You I know. was all about the 7-Eleven team. Of course. So much so that, um, yeah, I, follow, I still follow all those guys on Instagram now. Yeah. Or their kids or whatever. Um, I mean, who was it? It was, it was Bob Roll, I think, was on that team. Eric, Eric Hyden was my dude. Yeah. Because that guy just dominated speed skating and then went right into pro cycling and rode, rode for 7-Eleven for a while. Yeah. That was the era when they were just like... That American approach, they were pulling in like anybody, mm-hmm. you know, that are like, oh, uh, Ned Overend, you know, like, or yeah. Davis Finney, I think. Yeah. Was on that team. Yeah. And now his son is like doing right. his thing too. So, and then Hampston was just free to be like the glory boy, like amazingly winning Giro d'Italia. So all that stuff was a cool moment. Mm-hmm. And then running after that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, like, didn't make the basketball team, uh-huh. didn't make the volleyball team. <laughs> yeah. It must be said that, like, my school— I mean, you, first they, of all, like, let's just—was this, this, this in San Diego? This was, like, in the suburbs of Buffalo. This was, like, oh, when you this were, was oh, right, later okay. on. So this was, I like, not even, like, nothing. I mean, you had to be the only black dude on a bike. Yeah, oh, of course. You know. Yeah, but, like, once you're, like, the only black dude doing, like— Anything, Anything. Right. you cease to forget us. So now when we're in, in like kind of a, like a resurgence of like, I kind of rather disparagingly call it like Negro firsts. Like, okay, I'm the first black guy to step into a Starbucks today. Like, okay. Uh-huh. Like, so I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm acutely aware of like those politics and like, those are part of my, my politics as well. But I, I wasn't really thinking about that. Cause when you're getting your ass kicked or you're getting dropped on a hill, like, 
you're either going to care about being black or you're going to care about like catching back up, mm-hmm. you know? And like the times where you kind of like take on, and this is happens to now, I talk about it runners with runners now, the time like you allow some of that other emotionality of, 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 of being black to come in while you're running or racing, it's, it's too much. Yeah. You know, I mean, this happened to a woman in black roses, very strong sister from, from Brooklyn, very strong personality, black woman. <clears throat> and she went to a 50 K trail race and, uh, it was tough. It was wet. It rained, you know, and it was a tough race. Cause when she fell and like cut her knee or just like hurt her hand or whatever, after like the second or third time, like she just started thinking about being black. I don't know. I've talked to a handful mm-hmm. of folks about, you know, black folks who are involved in the outdoors and it's not so much like, yeah, I don't know. It, it, there, there's weird nuances to it. You know, it's not so much like there's no one black on this mountain or like everybody in the tents are white. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, that's maybe for some people, but there's like a, a watery emotionality to it where like you're, racial consciousness can like bubble up probably due to lack of oxygen, <laughs> but it can just bubble up and you're acutely aware, you know? So anyways, being like, well, the- I mean, it's, it's interesting because <clears throat> within the universe of running, there's all these subcultures. And, you know, I think you, I heard you say one time, like running is running is profoundly black, right? Which I want to explore that idea with you. And I think that's true for a variety of reasons. Uh, and if you go to, you know, track and field and marathoning at the, at the elite level, you know, it's, it's a black sport, but you go to trail runs, you go to ultra marathons and there's like no black people. It's a totally different subculture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool to take a break. It's cool to take a break. No, but, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, trail running in some ways is, is a little bit newer. I think it, there are, there have been like filters of access, obviously, historically and all that kind of stuff. I think through framing it up on social media has like kind of increased accessibility or like creating the idea in people's minds. And I just also think that, I don't know how I really feel about an activist approach to being a race director, no pun intended, but, um, I just kind of think sometimes I see these fields, I was looking at like a field of an elite mile and it was like, they're just like every time every field is like white, white, white. That's cool. But like, that's not really like what I'm seeing. I'm seeing like, there's, there's a couple folks and I don't just mean like, you know, naturalized Africans or American Africans, Africans in America. I mean, like there's like black Americans out here who are speaking to distance running and speaking to trail running. Um, you know, and they don't always have to be like whatever we all would perceive blackness to be, you know. But I just think just the the tableau, the look of something, the feel of something can shift a lot, yeah. you know. So when you say running is profoundly black, like what, is that, what does that mean? It, 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 <clears throat> I, I, I just have to say that because obviously like the roots of running are in Africa. Um, and indeed it was running coming together in the human toolkit and a lot of analyses anyways, that precipitated the species explosion from, from Southern Africa. 
But also all the way through, there's just been like, there's been black folks all the way through, you know, there's, there's been Ted Corbett, you know, at the Helsinki Olympics in the fifties, there's, there's been, you know, um, Daryl general, you know, kind of like winning Marine Corps and being like a legend in, in mm -hmm. the DC community. Um, but also, I think my frame of reference is, is, is a little fracked, but, um, just growing up in San Diego at that time, my dad and his friends had afros and short shets and mesh singlets and Nike waffle racers and were out there doing it. Uh -huh. And like they did it in a soulful black way. And then like the, the popular running literature of the time, like, you know, I'm a collector of like ephemera, but these sort of, you know, chapbooks and little manuals published by runner's world and other kind of like small publishers in the, in the seventies, like the covers were always black dudes. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Like the, the art all through them is always like black dudes wearing like amazing track suits <laughs> talking about like marathon workouts. Rocking, I was like, like incredible hair. Yeah, yeah. I was like, really long run with that Afro? Like, okay. You know? So, so that's cool. And then like, obviously that just immediately connects to like the, the dominance of, of the Africans on the distant stage, which again is also cultural. Mm -hmm. I think much more than, you know, genetic or whatever. Like that wasn't a fait accompli. Like if you read the, the, the actual history of like Africans at the world level, it just happened like just now. Yeah. You know, if you talk to Herman Silva, Mexicans were running, running in the nineties, you know, Africans were just trying to steal in there and get a win when they could. But like Mexico was turning out like the best in the world for that. And then things shifted. You know? what, what do you think happened that, that produced that shift? Because um, it's, I mean, at the marathon level, I mean, Africa just dominates. Yeah, the depth. I mean, like, obviously, the, the pre-existing conditions for, for that are there has been studied, like soft surfaces yeah. and altitude, carbohydrates. But that's always diet. been there. Yeah, but now if you're like have, you know, agents going in and, it's you know, supporting people. support. For yeah. sure. And so then like what's, whether it's the return on investment or the low overhead, what it takes to sort of like sustain and pull one champion out, you know, it's, it's the economics are kind of there. And then yeah. what one champion or what one system or what one program can do to sustain a cultural economy. And then to say nothing of like the corruption on like a structural level, how much money there's to be made from being corrupt. <laughs> yeah. But it, well, I would also think that, that, you know, guys like Mo and, and Elliot, th these guys have to be rock stars, you know, back home, right. That's got to like create interest in young people. And then, you know, suddenly everybody wants to be a runner and then sure. I mean, structure comes in to support that. Elliot's from Kenya. He trains in Kenya. He's lived in this camp his entire adult life. <clears throat> Mo trains in Ethiopia we were staying, we were training on Kenanisa Bekele's track. Like they're not friends, they're competitors. And uh, yeah, so to see Mo get so much love in Ethiopia was crazy because he's from Somalia, right. you know? They're, you know, Orthodox Christian or Coptic Church Christian. There's some Muslims there, but like Mo's Muslim, whole, the whole training camp is Muslim. They were just saluting Mo up like he was like one of theirs. Mm. It was it was crazy, and he just gave love back. So it was really <clears throat> kind of like a real uh, Pan African vibe. It really felt like 
this is crazy. I hope he doesn't, no offense to you. I hope he doesn't hear this, <laughs> but it was almost like, <laughs> right, like Mo doesn't listen to the original podcast, but it was almost like a Bob Marley thing. You know, I just felt like he was such an ambassador for like African excellence and black excellence that like people were just like hollering his name out in the street as they drove by out of a truck. Yeah. You know, it, it transcends any kind of national border. Why yeah. do you think he would react negatively to hearing that? I don't know if he likes Bob Marley. Okay. <laughs> he likes Drake. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like a, like a, yeah, like a classic, classic figure in that way. And it was also interesting him giving that love back and, you know, him speaking, you know, Amharic to people in the streets. And then the other thing is, and this really kind of tripped some people in his camp out or the coach or whatever, like, while Elliot's off in this camp living in this kind of like monastic environment, like Mo, the camp in Ethiopia was like right in a kind of a busy town with a commercial roadway. Uh-huh. Um, it drove the coach crazy because as soon as you'd leave the complex, he was like right out on a highway running. And then it, again, if more comedy, the coach would like load up the truck and like, I'll meet you at the training grounds. You run up for three, warm up for three miles and I'll meet you there. And just to think that this multiple like gold medalist is like stepping out or running in traffic around like oil trucks on right. the highway. It was crazy. At the first opportunity, he will duck off into like the coffee stand uh-huh. and just sit. And he had to have like two cups of like strong Ethiopian coffee before the workout. Uh-huh. While the coach is like, <laughs> or if the coach was with him, or we'd be going out to the long run, get up at like 5 a.m., drive out to the other side of the city, had to stop for Ethiopian coffee. But Ethiopian coffee is not like... Uh, in the Pacific Northwest where you go through the drive-through. This ain't Starbucks. This is like yeah. they making it there per cup. Uh-huh. Like it's toasting whole, the it's beans. A whole thing. <laughs> right. You're there for a while. A while. We got to this one, and there's like a whole authenticity. We got to this one roadside nondescript shack. The woman couldn't figure out the, the electric cords were burnt out, so she couldn't like get the hot plate working to toast the beans. So while she, while Abdi and Mo were trying to figure out the wiring, she was putting like fresh grass branches down on the dirt to like recreate the floor of a traditional home. This is like every day. Wow. The coach saw her putting down the grass and he's like, oh no, we're gonna we be, could here be here forever. <laughs> and we were there forever yeah. for one tiny cup of coffee, but he had to have it. Yeah. He, That's one time hilarious. he said it, you know, I, I'm sure he like, he does present himself as like the, the, the true, true, true gentleman. But like one time he like stepped into a coffee shop. He's like, I need that real shit. Not that machine shit. Give uh-huh. me that real shit. I was like, yeah, exactly. Real shit. Only. They're literally roasting it there. Yeah. And like per cup. Ro- roasting then, the beans and then like then beating it right. with, by hand with a, a metal stave. Like right. no grinders anything and uh and then they'll pour it for you he puts tons of sugar in it and then he's like okay now i'm ready now to run, run like four minute miles like <laughs> at altitude like yo i'll have two cups too right yeah because that's that crazy elevation up there in Addis Ababa, right it's yeah. like 8,000. Eight? Yeah, yeah eight i mean the long runs would be at ten thousand feet uh-huh. like it was that's comparative to like boulder or something right. like that or even mexico city that was it's a little extreme mm-hmm. yeah all right, let's go back. So you you get into you get into track and field in, yeah. in high school, right? I was the slowest kid on the team. My mom always says that like they were turning the lights out on me when I was finishing the two mile. The 
other kids were on the bus with the engine on ready waiting for me to finish and then i would like fall down at the end like it was like the feet of exhaustion. I have a hard time believing that. This is real. Like, I'd so humiliated. Just create a little empathy for your dad after this experience. (laughs) It was like, why didn't you tell me? (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I was just like a tryhard. I don't know. I just... You you didn't get too discouraged to quit? Like, what kept you in it? I guess it just felt real to me. I guess it just felt like failure was real. Failure at, like, my own hands was was real. But... A one second improvement was real. Finishing, this is terrible. This is not the mindset of a champion, but finish second to last is an improvement from the previous week. Yeah. <laughs> when you were well, last. Well, yeah, there's a self determinantism to it. Yeah. And, and you start to be able to do that math of oh, if I do this work, then I improve and you're responsible for that. Yeah. And the other thing that I've had to come to understand later, and this is a little tangential, but I think I loved. For someone like me who's very qualitative, I think I loved the quantitative aspect of it. I loved the time in your performance. Because when these days we're understanding fake news so much bandied about on all sides from all directions, I'm now realizing that like the black kid in me growing up around white folks in the 90s where like, You'd be all running, like people would just like scream racial epithets as you were like running out in the country training. That that was just people racially harassing you in your school or or whatever. I think, or people like accusing you of stuff that you didn't do, like projecting racist stereotypes on you that like you had no idea even existed. I think I was really attracted and enamored with early on the uh the time next to your name. Like I did that. You can say whatever you want about me, like Mm. in the hallway, or you can say like, I did this or I did that. But like, the fact is like right here with numbers and letters is like, that's real, you know? And then like, after a while, once I got better and your name's in the paper that I think that like really crystallized it, you know, it's pure. Yeah. And that fueled you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that also, led me to like wonder what else is possible all the way along through my running also just we're talking about Mo Farah these days so easily but like I've I've had like similar experiences with that like my entire running career but also my life where I've at any given point in time I've always been around someone who was the best and so I feel like since I was maybe 16 um, I used to train with these guys some of these guys still hold records in New York State you know guys running like four, 14 miles to eighth graders mm-hmm. or whatever to, to see that psychology very different from my own, but to see that good, bad guys who are burnout, self-destructive, but just to see what it means to be the best and like how you got to be the best. I've seen that from Leo Manzano, Abdi and Mo. I've seen that with my training partner, Mike Selinski up in, up in uh, Beacon, New York. And, and I, and I saw that in high school. And then, in college, I ran briefly for a D1 program, and when I walked into the locker room for the first day <clears throat> as a freshman, three of the guys in the locker room were on the Ju- uh, junior U.S. cross-country team. Like, half the U.S. team was in the locker room, like my teammates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was just used to, like, seeing the kind of best, and I think the writer in me observed it and took notes on that and kind of, like, 
you know, internalize that in some ways that now comes out as storytelling. Yeah. So there's a comfort with being a small fish in a big pond on some level because it affords you the opportunity to rub elbows with greatness and learn from, learn from the best. And that seems to be, this is like a, like a, a pattern of yours. Yeah. I'm definitely, definitely attracted to, to that. I love, I love watching. I mean, I love like being in the mix and, and on a fly on the wall and all the things that go into that. I love dialogue. I love the musicality of people's voices. I love perspective. I love the sudden revelations of someone's character. I mean, just to like be around Mo as a, just a recent example only or around Elliot Kipchoge, like I had like a weird experience with Kipchoge, the opposite of Mo. Like after I was in Ethiopia, I went out to work on a Nike project in, um, in Kenya. And, uh, with all this commotion and all this stuff going around Mo and three photographers and a videographer, like somehow it all just stopped and everybody was elsewhere. They were scouting, they were in the woods. And I just like sat with Elliot in the camp, just both of us next to each other for like two hours, just vibing, silent, nobody around. Bizarrely, I was sitting there by myself. He comes, picks up a lawn chair and like brings it over and sit, sit next to mine and then just like sits down next to me and we just chill. Like that kind of like quiet kind of vibe is equally as intense as kind of like, yeah. you know, studying Mo's character in, in Ethiopia. And being comfortable with the silence and not feeling like you have to hit him up and you know. that's exactly what you're thinking. You're yeah. like, now's the chance where I can ask him how to run a good marathon. Yeah. And then no, instead no, no. you're just like, <laughs> what's up? Let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's crazy. And you ended up going to Monza, right? You were there, you were on yeah. site for the breaking two and yeah. all of that. Yeah. That was, uh, incredible to watch visceral experience, man. I, uh, it, it, it was, it was tough to watch. Like, when you say vortex, I mean, he was in a vortex in that experience. And bizarrely, I, I cried at the end, like as a father, the father in me, like was like w watching someone else going through s such a difficult experience and watching it and knowing there was anything you could do to like help or reach out and be like, it was like watching your own kids like have a tough yeah. experience, you know? Where were the tears? What, what was that about, though? I just think uh, the fragility of, of being human. I mean, that's what it was. There's a lot of levels to that, from like Nike levels to production levels to science levels to quasi-science levels. But the human level of this guy, I don't use the phrase, this guy just doing it, you know, or very, very nearly just doing it, um, was like, hit me right in the heart. And like, as he was finishing, yeah, I just was like, I was lucky it was raining. I was like, I had sunglasses on. Cause I was crying underneath the sunglasses. Like, yeah, I'm cool. <laughs> it was impossible not to be moved by that. You know, I went into it a little, something not really jaded, but kind of like, all right, like, what is this? You know, it's, and then the more I watched it, I was like, I was all in. You know, it was, was like that. incredible Everybody watching was like that. that. Everybody from the Nike side, I'm not here to tell tales or whatever, but like 
it wasn't like a belief system on the ground in the days leading up to it. It wasn't like Pacers. It wasn't everybody around like, oh yeah, we're going to do this. This is a Nike moment. Everyone's like, uh, yeah, well, let's just see. Right. And it was like, it was kind of like the only person who thought he could do it was Elliot. That was bizarre to watch. So close. <laughs> I talked to uh, Alex Hutchinson, you know, Alex, yeah. yeah. Um, on the podcast, it was there as well. And he was expressing the same thing. Like it was just so incredible and moving to be witness to that, to that event. And, you know, there was a lot of <clears throat> production that went into that and a lot of showmanship, but at the same time on, on its like purest level, like this is a guy who's trying to do the impossible, you know, and he came so close to doing it and forget about all the bells and whistles, like just at, at a very base level, like it was such an amazing thing to watch. Yeah. You know, Nike, because of the production, I mean, they, they, they created the, the, uh, the semblance of having a tight grip on everything. And then they, they did, but also, you know, it was a totally speculative endeavor. There was drama in the yeah. pacer camp, a couple pacers cracked the times that the pace fluctuated here and there, like that, that there was probably, you know, kind of panic at the controls at uh -huh. a certain point in time. So, you know, behind the scenes, I'm sure that it was a, definitely a fraught environment. Yeah. And like just Kipchoge at the center, it was just like a, a vision of calm, you know? Right. And then you got to go pace at Caesar, right? <laughs> was that right after that or? It was the day after, the, yeah. The next day. Yeah. For his book. Um, yeah. So you I, get to I, have the experience on the track. On the track. And then, yeah. And they had the pace cars and everything. They, they the just basically set it up exactly the same way. Exactly. To run a half marathon, like, for his goal pace. Uh -huh. And uh, that's that's a crazy thing, too, because, like, that's, you know, on a Nike level or on a media level, that's, like, a high-level asset, as you'd probably say, like, uh, in, in, in espionage circles. So, um, couldn't mess that up. But at yeah. the same time, if you're an experienced runner or if you're, yeah, like experienced athlete, you're like, well, how are we going to mess this up? We're going to mess this up by like following the plan that they have. <laughs> so at a certain point in time, I was like, cool, what do you want to run? Cool story, bro. This is what we're going to do. Wow. <laughs> you know, like I would like to do this. I would like to do that. I was like, yeah, we, we're leaning into we're the pace. Do it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and it went off well, right? Yeah. A huge PR for him. Yeah. Um, on a writerly level, because he's such an uh, incredible writer. Um, so for people that don't know, he was covering the Breaking 2 story throughout. Was he for outside? Was he writing for, for Wired? For Wired, that's right. Yeah. Um, and then he's put together this book. This incredible book, Two Hours. Yeah, yeah then that's, uh, that's good. But, you know, like even in the Wired coverage, and this is why I was like really uh, edified to, to be asked to run with him, the, the Wired coverage was weird in the way that I like weird things. He'd be like properly skeptical of Nike's swoosh talk and the innovations. He'd be reporting on like the lives of these athletes in a beautiful, elegant way. But then he has these passages where he injects something personal and very emotional. Um, and I was like, that's real writing. Yeah. I mean, this guy's writing for Wired. Like you don't have to put in this kind of like melancholy side. No, they were like real think pieces. Yeah. And so I was just kind of fanned out over that. But then writer to writer, I was annoyed because as we were finishing, it starts raining halfway through. He gets to take his shirt off. 
he's, he's leaning into the pace. And then as we're finishing, the sun comes out, we have a lap to go. And then in the distance, we're in rural Italy, some church bells start tolling, not even oh, ringing. Come on. No, like tolling. So like writerly providence. I was like, this guy gets every, everything. <laughs> a Tesla. And then all of a sudden they were just like, dong, dong. And I was like, this is whack. These writers right. get all the luck. I, I got to like, I got to like get drunk and get thrown through a window well, to he, get a story. He, this know, guy. Then he, then, he, then he starts to wax poetic about it in his book and people think it's not true. Right. You know? Right. He's like, there's no way it happened like that. Yeah. I was, I was mad. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Well, speaking of, of being sort of reasonably skeptical uh, of Nike, not to go on a tangent here, but because it's so timely, yesterday Nike announced its new campaign with Colin Kaepernick, uh, Just Do It. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot being written about it and a lot, a lot being discussed at the moment and super interested in, in kind of your perspective on that. Yeah, I, I guess... Um, I mean, Nike is, is classically disruptive. Um, <laughs> I'm like a black dude on the left, so I didn't think it was disruptive. I, I saw the ad. I was like, oh, when's that? I didn't know I, it was well, like. That's my th I looked at it and I was like, oh, yeah, cool. okay, that's cool. But like, maybe they should have done that a year ago. Like if it can't, maybe it would be a little more edgy if it was last fall or last winter. But right. Like now it seems like, yeah, okay. Got it. 
But then I saw, like, then you're reading, like, oh, wow, like, there's a whole thing here, you know. Right, people going crazy. I, was, I would have met, like, it would have been amazing to be a fly on the wall in their creative meetings yeah. around this. Because I have a suspicion that, that, that perhaps this campaign did come together last year. And maybe there was some people who were like, let's do it now. Just mm -hmm. do it. Let's do it now. Yeah. Like, well, maybe the board was like, well, let's wait a little bit. You yeah. Know, it seems a little, it's because to me, it seemed safe to do it now. Yeah. It's almost too safe. Yeah. Obviously not. Like I'm misreading the culture, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yet again, like if, if we've learned anything from the past couple of years, yeah. it's like we're misreading culture left, right and center. Uh -huh. Like, um, yeah, that's super interesting. And obviously, like, the, the crazy media reactions or the reactions that have been reported in the media, like people burning their shoes in the front yard and all that kind of stuff. Cutting so, their socks up yeah, and stuff. Like, yeah, okay, that's intense. But um, I can't, yeah, the trials going forward, I mean, the, the lawsuit, that's big. Yeah. So if anything, um, it's interesting that Nike would, like, drop that after, like, such a a crazy event like what yeah what was the what was the dialogue in inside the berm as they say like what would the, be the internal dialogue in nike to to go through with that it's a really interesting decision making yeah so uh, i guess it's more provocative than i would have imagined and and i think you know it is a, it is a company and a culture that that began as a as a disruptive you know movement i think one of the things about nike at least from my perspective um, from what I've observed, <clears throat> do you work with them professionally or you're just, you're just like a, are you like an ambassador? I, uh, man, I, I don't think anybody there would ever say I've behaved professionally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I definitely have like, I've, I've been a consultant. I definitely was a founding mm -hmm. coach of Nike plus run club. Right. And then my group black roses NYC is, has received support from, from, uh, from the very beginning since we started in 2013. So I'm a, I'm a friend of the brand at least. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think it's interesting that, um, <laughs> they're also very provincial They're They are, what I like about them is they are, they're a young company, you know, even though they're like a global, you know, sort of a global multinational corporation, they are very rooted in this Pacific Northwest ethic um, as befits the founding uh, founding uh, genius, Bill Bowerman. Mm -hmm. So a lot of their decision-making and a lot of their vibes like come out of like that, that point of view. And so I keep thinking about this reaction. I haven't thought about it. Super problematic, but like, I don't know if like the people at Nike care so much about people burning their stuff. Like Nike cares about like Nike people and everybody else yeah. can, can, can burn in any way, shape or form, you know? So, well, the brand loyalty for, you know, people that love Nike is unparalleled. Yeah. And I, and I guess, but also, I mean, like on a political level, on a racial level, I'm not here saying that like Nike like loves black people or Nike's like a champion for like what black people are trying to do in America. I don't even know what black people are trying to do in America, like cohesively. So I'm not saying that Nike in 2018 is an apologist, is a corporate apologist for like the efforts of black America. <clears throat> but I think that they care about their people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and they care about themselves. So 
I think that's what I'm getting, you know? Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. You know, more will be revealed, I mm-hmm. guess. Once, uh, once, Wal- once the, once the street closes, right? Cause yeah. as of midday stocks are taking it. I hit. <laughs> oh, are they? I was bad. Oh, I didn't know that. I was bad. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'll bounce back. Yeah. I think it was a, I, I you know, I applaud the move, man. Yeah. You know, what, what side of history do you want to be on? Yeah. I guess that's the question that I, I would love that for a lot of us to ask, like that, that's a real question, you know? Um, and you know, I was in New York. This is, has nothing to do with anything we've talked about. So full disclosure, this just is like a experience that's, as you might relate under, under the skin of, of a lot of New Yorkers. I was here on nine 11 mm. And um, watching it with your own two eyes, watching these towers come down and just like remembering what happened on the day you were watching history. Yeah, sure, Obama's inauguration was history. But like this was a before and after of history. This was like a side of history, you know, or in some senses in analyses at the time, this was the end of history. And so I, I think once you've been around momentous experiences or occurrences you very much have to understand you have to keep your eyes open right that's kind of like a 60s idea like keep your eyes open you know keep your eyes on the ball because you really have to understand everything for yourself so you know which side you're going to be on because like 20 years from now it's going to be a very different analysis or Mm -hmm. understanding from like what's happening day to day yeah where were you in new york when 9 11 happened (laughs) We were supposed to shoot Lenny Kravitz for the cover of the fader, uh-huh. <laughs> just a few blocks from the towers. And <clears throat> I didn't want to be around Lenny Kravitz looking jacked up. So I went to the barbershop, got cleaned up at the barbershop <laughs> and I was walking down the street in Brooklyn and, uh, and heard the boom. And then, you know, Brooklyn, a crackhead came around the corner and was like, a plane just crashed into a building downtown. And I was like, oh, again, because... The month before, a Cessna had crashed right. into like clip the bank tower in downtown right, Brooklyn. Right, right, right. So I was like, "Oh God, traffic!" <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, and then again, then the world kind of ended, or at least like stopped and went in a different direction. Um, that was sort of my facile understanding mm-hmm. of it. Now we know that it's much more complex. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I went over to sort of my co-workers place we we were watching it from brooklyn then we went up on the promenade in brooklyn heights watched it and then bizarrely we got on bikes and rode to ground zero oh you did yeah like went over they the, let you cross a bridge and everything there was there was nobody not there was nothing i mean early in the day everybody was just shattered and shocked like law enforcement god bless them everybody was just shattered you know, so it's like we rode right up to ground zero after they fell. Yeah. And like smoke everywhere, all in the streets and like just flicking away with our little 35 millimeters. Like we didn't even know where she was just crazy, oh my God. crazy day, you know? Wow. You must have amazing photos from that day then. We've never seen the photos. I don't think my, my I don't think we ever developed the film. Really? Yeah. Just because you couldn't, you couldn't bear to. Uh, I mean, I, I remember months. I, I didn't ride the subway for months after. I rode my bike, like, you know, to to work, like through all the way through December. And then I remember, like, but once I was on the train, I was reading like something that uh, 
Paul Oster wrote in the in the New Yorker about it. And I made it like two paragraphs in and I just burst into tears. And I was like, I can't even handle this, you know? Mm. So anyways, weird side note. <laughs> yeah, no. I but mean, about, I, I think you got to think about like what, what side of history we're on in, yeah. in various moments, you know? <clears throat> yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's something that I, that I'm always thinking about in terms of like, how I manage social media. Like, do I participate in this? Do I, you know, it's like, I don't want to be on the sidelines and say nothing, but I also don't want to, you know, get in all sorts of arguments that go nowhere either, mm -hmm. you know? And I probably defer too much to not saying anything because I don't want the aggravation of like a bunch of nonsense coming into my field. But I think it's imperative that we all think long and hard about where do we stand and what side of history do we want to be on? You know, because yeah. we're at a pivotal moment right now. There's a lot at stake. Things are super crazy. They're probably going to get crazier. And, you know, where are we headed collectively as a culture? You know, I think we can argue about politics, but on some level, there's a crisis of consciousness happening right now. And, 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 and we, need to, we need to, like, raise the floor on, like, how we comport ourselves and how we treat our fellow man. It starts with our own individual behavior. I mean, I definitely have grew up with an activist ethic. I definitely, you know, have shut down like my college campus with a megaphone on the uh -huh. steps of like whatever. I definitely, you know, <laughs> I, I I definitely have have uh, have notched notched a couple, you know, silly forays into into politics. But um, so it's it's not frustrating. I'm like super engaged now on a personal level. But again, since you brought up social media, like what I'm doing with first run is almost exclusively running. Yeah. Because I feel like yeah, as much as I want to weigh in, as much as I want to post a funny meme or I got cute kid, like as much as I want to like post that, it's just kind of like I kind of feel like in a crisis if people are like going through their phone and they're just seeing like this dude running every day that I feel like hopefully that that's a constant and that can provide yeah. people inspiration. You know, I've not put myself at the level of greats, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, but that's always the, that's a kind of a polarity in the black community. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, you don't get to, you don't always get to choose which side you're on the King or the, or, or Malcolm. Like for me, I'd love to be in the mix, maybe, but for whatever it is, like there's a running boom. I have like something to offer, I'd like to think. And so I gotta I gotta stick with that. I gotta like yeah. that's my wheelhouse. Well, first run is very specific and it has a certain aesthetic. And I think when you visit that page, like you know, okay, you, you kind of know what you're gonna get and you're very conscious and making sure that you curate that experience to kind of serve that idea. <clears throat> but what's beautiful about that is it is, it does produce this unifying effect, right? Which is kind of what you're all about. That's the editorial approach. I think like my own appetites when I was a writer and an editor, I, I, I loved, um, I love small town newspapers. I love police blotters. I love gazettes. Police blotters. Yeah. My mom still, <laughs> my mom was still cuts up the police blotter and like saves the scraps. So when I go uh -huh. on a visit, she's like, okay, read this one and just, okay, now read this one, you know? So I just love, I love that. And I love the idea 
you know, even America's greatest writers were like shoestring reporters, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, Hemingway or Hunter S. Thompson, like in Puerto Rico, Zorno Hurston and Langston Hughes traveling down south and filing dispatches back to newspapers in, in Harlem. That, those are kind of always like my aspirations. I love just like getting off little pieces, little vignettes that kind of make people think about something and go in a different way. Talk yeah. of the town or, you know, that, that, those are, those are my appetites. Those are my tastes. So, um, if I could just tell stories and, and, and kind of like have people fall in love with running, if, if someone's training for their first marathon and the little stories I'm telling, whether like, ah, running is so hard or running is revelatory or running is beautiful or running is a good excuse to get to the beach. If that's making their first marathon journey easier, that's cool. Cause when you're training for your first marathon, you're like pulling everybody into your drama. Yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like yeah. People, and you're looking for that inspiration and those nuggets of wisdom everywhere you can. Right. And your roommate doesn't understand and your boss doesn't understand it and all that. So if and like, it's all new to you, it's all new. So yeah. you're like burning bright. And if, if you can just kind of like connect with sources of inspiration and like, ah, this person gets me, you know, as runners get one another, then I, I, I hope that, uh, that that's yeah. part of what's happening. Well, the, your writing is beautiful. Uh, in these posts. And I'm wondering why you haven't written a book yet. <laughs> well, you did that. You worked on that one Africa soccer book, right? Yeah, yeah I did, yeah, I did work on our essays. A book, yeah. You. Uh, in but the your African own game. book about running and your aesthetic and like this this idea of running culture. I, Come on, man. I, I would love that. I mean, I'm a writer. That book would be the bomb. I'm a writer. I, I know. The book could be a piece of hot garbage and I would still be proud. You know what I mean? So I don't, I don't even, I'm not even... You know, I'll send you this poem later by W.S. Merwin about uh, John Berryman. And um, <clears throat> Merwin obviously lives in Hawaii now, still alive. Uh, and it was at this time where he was uh, a tutor for Berryman's kids on Mallorca or something. Berryman was an alcoholic and spinning out of control in his life. Um, but Merwin asked Berryman for advice, you know, on how to be a good writer. And Berryman's like, gives him a bunch of crazy shit like paper your walls with rejection slips, save every single one and just like absorb it all and get down and pray to the muse. And I mean that literally like pray for like the muse of poetry. But then at the end of the poem, spoiler alert, I'll ruin it for everybody who's not going to read it anyways. But he says, he says, how can you be sure that what you ever write is any good? And Berryman's like, you can't, you can't, you can never be sure you die without knowing. If you have to be sure, don't write. So, so are you hanging on to that as yeah, like for me, I don't care. Like, hey, listen, if there's a book out there with like sketches on a cocktail napkin and it says Knox Robinson on the cover, I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah. So get it together, man. Yeah. Get these cocktails. Seriously. No, like, I, no, I, I think you have a, you have a great book in you. Jokes aside, I would yeah. love to write. And so, you know, not as a call to action to your listeners or whatever, but I definitely, um, having worked as an editor before I could use the support of, of, of someone to come in and be like, Hey, let's sit down and like have a coffee. And I think like you can move in this vein or you can move in that. Yeah. Or if I could just like pitch three concrete ideas for someone to walk it in. The other thing is too, it's just like in the music business, people releasing mixtape mixtapes and stuff like that. I, I would take like 10 grand and print up my own book and just like sell it. That races. <laughs> We're going to talk after this podcast. Man. I'm going to get you whatever you need to get this going because I want to read this book. What do you think? It, what do you What do you think it would be? Because on one hand, it could be like 
I can, I, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of different books that you, that you could write, but I think the book that I would want to read from you would be a book that is sort of part running primer for that first time marathoner. And it's not a training plan book, but it's sort of inspiration and perhaps a little bit of guidance. But what you bring to that conversation that nobody, it's like, what do you have that no one else has? What can you say that no one else can say? And what you bring to bear is this perspective on culture. And it goes back to being, you know, this vortex at the intersection of art, culture, poetry, music, and running, and how running unites all, how all of these things relate to each other in the context of running to um, inspire this sense that running is more than just your time or, or you know, crossing the finish line at a race, but that it is, it, it, it's, you know, I wanna say lifestyle, but that's not even, that doesn't really describe what I'm trying to get at. It's, it's an ethos, right? It is a, it, it is a way of life. Right, and you're the prism through which you perceive that and live it on a daily basis is unique, and your ability to express it is is beautiful. So I think it would be a gift for you to find a way to really channel the best of all of that into like this primer, you know, that people would, and you know, it could be, uh, you know, it could have beautiful photography in it. It could bring all of that experience that you had you know, being an editor in chief at Fader to create a book that's unlike any other running book that's ever existed. I would love that. I mean, I, I draw inspiration from, from other books, you know, on running, for instance, that, that are unlike others that have, have ever existed. So I would love to kind of like be inspired by those, but it does resonate. People want that cultural aspect. Mm-hmm. I, uh, fact of the matter is when I was in this camp with Mo Farah, like I, did not get along well with this coach, this amazing coach. Um, and it got to loggerheads by the end of my time there. It's pretty caustic experience, but, um, what was the beef, man? I, he, he, we're just from different worlds. Uh-huh. Like, obviously, I'm, like I said, I just showed up. Yeah. I'm like, you're like, who's this guy's getting in the way of my vibe here. I'm just like a black dude from New York who's showing up with like, the prototype Nikes and like all black everything clothes and like luggage and like a photographer flying into meat and like the guys are cool with me. It was just everything. Yeah. I, I realize if if you've been in a certain world, this guy's like been an elite athlete or around elite athletes. That's his experience. Yeah. You're meeting like a guy like me in your training camp, and you know, obviously, it's like a little uh, disruptive. Um, but it came down to like a. a one of the many amazing accusations that uh, he made was that I was going to leak the workouts either to let's run uh, gotcha. or like leak, leak, leak. The reality is I was taking copious notes uh-huh. <laughs> because it was fascinating to watch, yeah, you know, that. but I'm not going to like leak. Um, but the whole time I was in Ethiopia, nobody ever asked me in my time since nobody's ever asked me about a single workout. I didn't get a DM nothing Instagram. What were they doing? Like all anyone ever asked was the recipe for this peanut butter tea that they made at the training camp. Like uh-huh. my phone's still hot. Like, yo, you, you better come with that recipe. Yo, like that's all I need, but that's culture. Yeah. So what you're saying is we are at this moment where the, the interest is in culture. The culture transcends the performance agenda. I think as a point also, of interest. Yeah, I also think what's happened, and this is kind of what I, I guess maybe I hope 
to do in the beginning, I think running has been dragged into culture or like uh, we have like a cultural analysis of running when before it was sports, you know? It's like now all we hear is like culture, culture, culture. You don't hear the word sport so much, you know? Um, and so it's just amazing that two words that didn't even remotely coexist in the same space, running and culture, can now be fused in a hashtag or like seen in a way. Like even major brands, you know, bereft of ideas are still like running culture, yeah. <laughs> like trying to sound the words out like awkwardly. Well, a, a great example of that is the work that you're doing with Jaybird right now. These, these, this run wild series is insane. Like the, <laughs> the latest one, I, I emailed you about this, like the Tokyo video yeah. is off the hook. It's yeah. so well executed yeah. and it just gets you so jazzed up. Like you want to join one of these running collectives in an urban environment and just run the streets and they're, they're, beautifully produced. And, and that's like the perfect vehicle for you yeah. to travel to these places, immerse yourself in the quote unquote running culture and find out, you know, the commonalities and the differences all across the world. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing. I mean, it's a credit to the director, Tim Kempel, obviously from Camp 4 Collective, who's just... That uh, guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. Like he's, he's seen it, but... Um, I was just laughing today, like this guy is like jumping out of a helicopter and shooting on Chamonix. Like, but last that's week his when, background is yeah, that? he's a world class rock climber. Oh wow! I thought he must have been like a music video director or something. Nah, th wow. Th this is a a, a world class rock climber trying to make a music video. Oh wow! And he's coming to me like, my whole idea is we're going to just shoot this thing like a music video, and I'm coming out of the music business. It's like I don't want to shoot a music video. Uh -huh. B, I'm trying to do like. I want you to shoot some rock climbing shit in Tokyo. Um, so it's just awesome to see like all that energy come together and then to watch him as like a filmmaker work, to watch an artist at work. His process is very different from other filmmakers that I've that, that had the opportunity to work yeah. with. So he's awesome. Jaber team is awesome. They're they're open to so much, open to to damn near anything. So that's cool. And uh, the music guy in me, and the music obsessive in me loves you know, them as like a music company. Yeah. Like they're always like, ah, oh, the, pro the product is awesome, but um, they're, you know, running, running. I was like, let's talk music. You guys are a music company. And like everybody at the company has like a weird music background or has that passion inside too. So that's cool. Yeah, we were talking just before the podcast because uh, I've been talking to those guys as well, and and they were expressing the same thing. I was like, "Wow, you guys are like a content company." Like I always thought you were a hardware company, but yeah. they're everything that's coming out of them is all about like creating an experience that transcends just the technology of what they're selling, which I think is pretty cool. And yeah. and you know, you see other brands getting out. Oh, we're going to make this video series or whatever, but they've really you know taken that idea to a different level. Yeah. So are you going to a more city? Like how many episodes of this are you going to do? Well, they just came to New York. And so then I was like super stressed. They came to New York and I was like, okay, Tokyo is incredible. London, my homie, Charlie Dark, the icon of like global running. And, and that was, running. was that in Shoreditch? Yeah. He's like think? on a rooftop at dawn, like mixing off music beats, like right. playing to the city. I was like, oh God, I can't catch a break. They're going to come to New York and I'm just going to be like eating a slice of pizza. <laughs> Waiting for like the bus or something uh, like that. What am I going to show you in New York? And we we took them into like deep culture. We took them into like deep Brooklyn with a couple of women, you know, running down Flatbush Avenue. We definitely, we got to see some performance aspects of Black Roses. Um, so people did 
do a long run, finish at exhaustion, cursing, and like passing out on a track in extreme heat. So that's part of our DNA. Um, there was like a DJ set at our rooftop playing uh-huh. some records. So there was there was some some uh, there was some. It was definitely accurate vibes. It's cool. And you, are you gonna go? Are you traveling to more cities for this? Or yeah, I don't want to reveal. I don't want to jinx slash reveal right. with this next one. But the one, yeah, they had a couple things options, and I was just like bided my time and then like when the time was right they're, they're like hey remember that that such and such place you mentioned i was like yeah they're like do you have connections there i was like yeah so hopefully in october we're going to be jetting out to see something really really special That's dope. yeah so when someone says to you running culture i mean this is a, this is almost a phrase that you've helped coin or if not coin like introduce to the culture to the culture at large uh, so what does that, what does it mean to you? Like, how do you define that for yourself? You know, I, I could be more sophisticated, you know, if I had a graduate degree or something, but if you think back to like the anthropology class that you like took when you went to college, like 101 and culture was this tribe, this nation, the Yanomami in the rainforest in the Amazon, Napoleon Chagnon's perspective on it. And like, this is what culture is. This is what society means. That's my definition of culture. What are the attributes and like the ways of living that a particular group of people share? Now, it can be the Yanomami Indian. It could be uh, the Geechee Gullah folks living off the coast of South Carolina and the Sea Islands. Um, so what commonalities do runners have? Because what happens after you like fall in love with running and become a runner? I love watching it happen. No matter how different you may be from from me or, or you, like that transformation, that transfiguration that that happens, that renders you defunct <laughs> from like dating certain kinds of people, having certain kind of jobs. Once like a lot of your life is scuttled or subjugated to your dreams of running, then like you're a prisoner of culture. You know, to paraphrase this this book by Jean Genet, yeah, you're 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 a prisoner of of the culture and you find yourself an acolyte and an adherent of, um, you know, the commonalities, a certain set of param- agreed upon parameters, not even agreed upon, right. They're just, uh, those just are the parameters and you find yourself like in the subject that we subject ourselves to consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. 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 That's and I love it that it it's, it's deeper than like, you know, which, hydration you're going to use it's so much deeper than like which shoe you run in like all that kind of stuff like oops sorry brands but like i I don't even feel that relates to the culture at all i kind of feel like there's so many levels under that yeah um that there's a frequency and that's where the culture is Uh uh-huh so let's talk about black roses we just we we, actually we just like skipped over like a big part of your life i mean basically like you ran you ran in college you ran at a certain level you, you were training with like super fast guys um at some point you were no longer the last or second to last guy like you competed at a pretty high level but then you uh you put running in the in the rear view right yeah and you moved to new york you're thinking about your career you get a job at like a museum at an African uh, history museum through yeah. Maya Angelou. Like, <laughs> <it's> like <laughs> yeah. Totally. Maya Angelou is like your teacher or something. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I mean, break studied. that down because how right. does that work? Well, she was on faculty at Wake Forest University where I went to school and um, she was literally your teacher. 
Yeah. That's crazy. Like, yeah. And that was, yeah. So she's yeah. teaching poetry, obviously, or, uh, she was, she was, I don't want to be crazy, but she was bigger than poetry. Right. So of course she couldn't, she couldn't, but I'm trying to think of the class that she, she was just like teaching the human experience. <laughs> uh-huh. that's, so well, what's your job, man? Uh, I'll teach the human experience. Like right. she, <laughs> she taught the Few human people experience. people to pull that off, but she's and one, one Right. Yeah. And it would be everything. I mean, so it was all her works. It was like everything from like a two line uh, utterance uh, from a, a, a slave in the Roman empire all the way up to, you know, something that was written in yeah. the two thousands. Also, I was, um, was the guy, it wasn't too many brothers in the class. It was like the kind of thing where it was just like the good meaning, good natured white kids like were like flocking to this class, like uh-huh. Maya Angelou, you know? So, um, but I was, I was like helped her down the stairs into her car, like after every class. Uh-huh. So it was like, I kind of had like a you special, got, you created a little bond, little with bond. And I violated the bond. Like every semester, every class, she cooks dinner at her house. So it's like a big thing to like go to my Angela's house where she's chefing. Man, the day it happened, one of my favorite poets was making a rare appearance on the East Coast. He's a West Coast beatnik guy from the 50s, 60s who never comes out East. And he was in another part of the state. And like me and this woman from just drove there and saw it. And like, I skipped dinner at my Angela's house to go see Gary Snyder read. That's a crazy dilemma. <laughs> Favorite beat poet versus poet laureate. Dinner, cooking your dinner. Yeah, cookie. How do you make that decision? I feel like she would appreciate the decision that you made or does she take it personally? Yeah, she took it personally. She did? So you saw that poet? I was I'm like, right here. I think I'm good. I'm the, yeah. the I'm the young I'm the young poetry brother, uh-huh. like helping her to the car every after every <laughs> class. Skip the dinner, snubbed her, snubbed the dinner, and then um, come back into class the next week. And she says, "Mr. Robinson, your presence at dinner was greatly missed in front of the whole class." And I was like. All I could say was like, that's devastating. I was humiliated. (laughs) And I was like, I greatly missed the dinner. That's all I could say. I just like, like sunk down. Did you tell her what you did? Yeah, of course. And think about it. Maya Angelou like knows all these guys. She Uh was like before she, yeah, she was a living. She was a beatnik. Yeah. You know, if you talk to the protege or the real thing. Right. Well, she was around all these guys in the fifties in San Francisco. So I told her like who I saw and she's like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then I think, I think I like passed out in her basement after graduate on graduation night. That was awkward. I'm a narcoleptic, like a vague narcoleptic. Uh, Oh, not, not cause you drank too much. No, no. I was, I was, I was pretty straight laced in, in school. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, so it wasn't, it was, it was, it was fine. We, it was, it was great. She definitely had, a, had a lot of uh, affection for me. And then, yeah, it got me my first job in New York, like in a really bizarre episode where she just called the director of this museum mm-hmm. up from her desk phone as I like sat there, like, and just told the guy to hire me. Right. So of course the guy does. Yeah. He's but without anything to, to no. do. So right. I just, again, 
I just show up on the first day. They have a desk, but like I didn't have, all I did for like a year of working at this museum was make like white wine spritzers at events once a month. And then like, I just went in the archives and I just read. So I spent uh-huh. a year reading like unpublished manuscripts of like Langston Hughes. I spent a year like going into archives and looking at like Basquiat paintings that have never been displayed before. I just like wow. would be able to go into like pull out actual physical copies, typewritten manuscripts of like my favorite writers. I just spent a year reading. Did and you have this, you know, deep interest in the history of black culture prior to this or did that experience in the museum and the access to all of that material did that like sort of provoke that for you? The best thing was I was like, it was an era in New York and indeed in the world that was like a, <clears throat> a renaissance in black arts and culture. So it was there in the music and, uh-huh. and spoken word scene and, and, and all that. And so I was definitely came to New York as an aspirant to like join that scene. I thought I was going to have a spoken word CD out. That was going to be your thing, yeah, right? Like uh-huh. poetry. Um, the best. You say that you're like, you're, you're, you're dismissive of yourself when you, when you, you know that you are, right? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Just own it. You I can was, still do it. You do it in your writing already. I was at open mic nights, you know, like I was Uh like getting on the mic and like, you know, second to last on the, on the microphone, you know Yeah, but look look what you did in running, man. It was the same experience. It it was excruciating. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. But so so the best thing happened was that, um, I kind of had like a, a very, what I would probably say today is like a middle-class understanding of black culture. Mm -hmm. Like, Here's the politics. Sure, I was on the left. I was like more Malcolm than Martin. Here's like the canon. This is what I think. And the amazing thing about the diversity of all of our world cultures and all of our experiences, but the amazing thing for me was that at this first year in New York, I just got to see all the weird stuff, like all the third stream stuff. I got to see amazing writers who wrote two books in the 70s and never published again because they couldn't. I got to think about, you know, not John Coltrane versus Miles Davis, but I got to think about Sun Ra like as a third stream artist. So mm-hmm. it was my first time. And then at the same, it, at that time, I was also hanging out in downtown and clubs in New York and seeing like black indie rock bands, like jump off the stage into a crowd of like three people, you right. know? And so I just had this whole experience where I just was reading and looking and seeing like black folks living like any kind of way they wanted to. Um, it was incredibly inspiring for me because I yeah. was just, it just freed me up from like any sort of preconceived notion. You know, when you read about like my favorite writer, Amir Baraka, when you realize he was, <clears throat> again, a jazzy, no pun intended, like beatnik poet and was writing his opinions on the jazz music and blues and white critics will never understand it. And there was one moment where he was at a party, you know, being super intellectual and talking all loud and Charles Mingus is behind him. Mm. And Mingus just turns and is like, huh, funny. He thinks it's about him. And just like the humbling experience of recognizing that it's not about you. Um, as a running note, Sonia Richards Ross is one time told me that uh, her dad always reminds her the same thing, that there's no one person bigger than the sport. There's no, even Usain Bolt is like in the firmament of what all of our hopes and aspirations are. And so for me at the time, it was just really humbling just to be a fly on the wall, just be a kid in a, in the mix, like watching something yeah. amazing, watching magic happen or like finding a book that I didn't know existed 
you know, and, and reading about it and, and loving it, taking it to the heart. But some sense that you wanted to pursue some type of career that, that would place you at the center of like this culture. Yeah. I mean, you definitely want to make it in your young. So you want to like, yeah, it's New York. You want to be famous or right. whatever like that. But again, I had all these like bizarre experiences. My, my first day in Brooklyn, <clears throat> when I like my idols at the time was like a dude who was on the first season of Real World, became a writer, became a, journal, a hip -hop, famous hip hop journalist. And he was like eating a slice of pizza at this pizzeria. I sat down next to him. He started talking to me and I was like, holy shit, this is Kevin Powell, like my idol. <laughs> um, and he said, uh, first season of Real World. Yeah. When they had that dope apartment in, in New York. Of course. I remember that. Right. Yeah. So all of a sudden I'm sitting next to Kevin, uh, Kevin Powell. And he's like, oh, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm here, writer. He's like, listen, for the first six months, do everything. Go everywhere. Go to every show. Go to every open mic. Go to rock everything possible. And then pull away from it and forget it all and just, like, do you. Now, I just took that as, like, the it's best great advice. advice. Yeah. And it's curiously enough, like, uh, a Czech writer gave the same advice to Langston Hughes in 1925. He said, hide and write and study and think. And between those two sort of um, piece of, a, of advice, that's kind of like what my <clears throat> acumen is as a writer and as a, as a journalist and probably even as a runner. Mm -hmm. But before the journalism career cropped up, you had, you, you did this tour as a, as a manager, right? You were managing bands after, after. So oh, that once, was after, yeah, that was, once, at, that was after Fader. Yeah. After. Oh, wow. So I was at Fader and was just sitting around and <clears throat> you know you're hot you know there's you're hot when you get fired you know so a, a, a super amazing music label from from london one of the most reputable indie labels came and kind of like forced a label on me like what do you want to do you can do whatever you want put out the music you were writing out i was like yeah cool to be an a and r guy you mean just to be yeah a and r sure but also like to like have my own label oh wow you know with, but without caught up in like the the business structures and all that kind of stuff i can just put yeah. out whatever i want on my own imprint let's say uh-huh um <clears throat> but after fader i kind of resolved that i didn't want to be anyone's boss ever again and um <clears throat> i just didn't really take to like coming in the office and checking in and reporting and all that kind of stuff so i did one amazing reggae compilation of roots music from, from Kingston and Brooklyn. Uh, but I didn't really have like the bandwidth to, to pursue it. But anyways, after the label thing didn't really take off, I found this band that I really wanted to put out. And it was like a cosmic jazz brass band of like eight blood brothers from the South side of Chicago who are like, they were hard rocks. They were like young dudes. Mm -hmm their dad was Sun Ra's first band leader and like they kind of grew up, they were the youngest sons of 27 kids that their dad had wow. in this sort of cultural con context, black cultural nationalism context of Chicago. Um, so they grew up totally Afrocentric, totally vegetarian slash vegan, um, only playing their father's music. It's not even like they would play like jazz standards. They only once they started writing music, they only played their music. And the only music they ever studied growing up was their father's music. And they studied before wow. school, went to public school. But then, of course, imagine you're like South Side of Chicago, vegan. Your dad's like a weirdo musician. 
you're they yeah that, that road gets narrow right so they went to school and like became rappers uh-huh. so they could all rap and they wanted to be like a rap group but they came to new york and they started playing in the street in chicago and then playing in the streets of new york their own compositions that are like this incredibly like addictive they're called hypnotic brass ensemble and that's the word for the the way the music sounds like <clears throat> that very north african gypsy aeolian mode but with like a pulsating rhythm that is just so uh enrapturing hmm. so i was trying to put these guys out um and i ended up kind of just like helping them out like they were like playing in the street making two three thousand dollars a day wow like and splitting it up every night and then like going out and playing again i was like hey this could be bigger like we could put out something they went to europe I always remember I ran the New York City Marathon, finished, and then like jumped on a plane and went to Germany to like catch up with them for their first tour. And just, they played in the streets and made a lot of money. And I had pressed up some records with my own cash and we were selling them in the street. It was just a very mercantilist like retail operation. Mm -hmm. Um, So from there, the economics were finite. Like an eight-piece band means like eight plane tickets and right. hotel rooms. And yeah. I, so then I was like, okay. So then I managed a four-piece guys who are like prog rock from Soweto in South Africa. That was four guys. And then you'd be on tour and you'd see like a DJ just walking through the airport with like the laptop and a carry-on. And you're like, ah, that's what I need. And so yeah. then I ended up... Um, managing like uh, an emergent rapper kind of like a post kanye rapper named theophilus london who's like a great kind of impactful artist at, at the time and of course within six months he wants to play with a band <laughs> i was like, like okay <laughs> this is killing me so shout out to all the guys I are, there, are those guys all out there doing it now yeah yeah like uh they're they're all still touring the world they're all still crazy um i just went to south africa to uh to run comrades Oh, you Marathon. did? Oh, you ran Comrades. Yeah, I ran wow. Comrades. And then, like, the day later, I'm, like, back with the guys in the studio. They're like, we're in the studio. Let's hang out. And I was like, I just ran 56 miles. And we're in the studio, and guys are, like, taking three hours to, like, tune the drums. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to stick with this running shit. <laughs> I can't go back uh-huh. to the music business at all. So you did that for a while. Yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, the inciting incident seems to be when you had your first kid, right? Because you weren't running at all. You're partying and doing yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Staying up late. And- yeah. Yeah, and then the experience of watching my son Raul come into the world was just um, super affecting. You know, like as adults and now more than ever, we sit around dragging our knuckles about the state of the world and how bad everything is, rightfully so tearing each other's eyes out. Um, But then when you watch a child being born, you're watching like one of your own species like demand their place in the human community. And there's no other way I know how to talk about it. Uh, It's just so powerful. And it requires such a singular unity of like body and mind and spirit that I just thought, man, when was the last time I ever did something? Yeah. Everything's cool. I'm, a, you know, editor in chief of the magazine. I got an expensive Amex. I'm flying in and out of Rio with Diplo or whatever. But it's like, when's the last time I did anything with that singularity, that unity? <clears throat> and the only thing I could think of was running. And so the very next day, like I started running in this, 
you know, park across the street from my house, like one loop, then two loops and three loops. How long had you taken off? Uh, probably 10 years. Yeah. yeah. Without really any running at all. Zero running. I think the only time I thought about it was when the marathon came through the neighborhood every year. And then mm -hmm. also there's always like that one day in the fall that smells like cross country or the leaves are changing and you have like a, a flicker of like remembering what it was like to run as a kid. Yeah. I listened to uh, an interview recently with David Diggs from Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that he had been like this killer hurdler. Like wow. he was like top flight, like Olympic trials, okay. like super fast. Yeah. And when he embarked on his career, he kind of put it in the rear view mirror. And I can't remember, maybe it was Mark Merritt. I can't remember who was interviewing him, but the question was like, well, why didn't you, why didn't you just keep running? And like, what, he's like, because you go to the gym and people are trying to lose a little bit of weight or they're out jogging. And he's like, when I went to the track, it was like, I was working on my superpower, you know? And once you kind of let go of this idea that you're gonna be a superhero, he found it difficult to like have a different kind of relationship with running. And that's kept him from pursuing it. Is that a similar, is that something similar to your experience or was it just, I'm done with that? Um, I think in a specific sense, maybe my own departure from running, distance running is, 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 is tough in a different kind of way, but it was, it was kind of super poignant. So I, I didn't really revisit it. Um, or didn't really choose to revisit it, but I do always think about that uh, that scene in like probably the first Superman where he's all washed out and he's like got a five o'clock shadow and he's drinking mm -hmm. in a bar and all that kind of stuff. I feel like that. Like even Superman having a bad day is like going to the dive and it's like I'm gonna be here. No one knows who I am, uh -huh. you know. And like he's not even Clark Kent. He was just like dirt. The uniform was like dirty and he's drinking whiskey in the back of a dive. And I was like, oh, that's real, you know, like. Even if you have your superpower, you can sort of like, it can come and go, you know? Mm -hmm. The muse visits you, like, right. you come and go. So, so yeah. So, Raul's born, you get back into running. Yeah. Did you have a sense that you wanted to make, I mean, when did it, when did it occur to you that this could be like a path for you beyond just being in touch with? running as something enjoyable. Yeah, well, in, in shorter, I mean, I, I definitely like threw myself into it. I still had like the reference point of like an NCAA D1 bro, where I was like, mm -hmm. oh, my first marathon, I go out and run 115, I qualify for New York City automatically. Oh, cool, I'm gonna run 230 in my first marathon. Cool, boop, boop, boop. Comedy ensues. <laughs> I'm training, I'm training, I'm training, whatever, whatever. But uh, I had life changes and everything, but I, I, I I moved up to the country. Uh, yeah, it was it was in New York City Marathon in 2011. I had gone to South Africa uh, with this rapper I was managing. Acted crazy there. Then we went to Paris for some shows and like Fashion Week, right? And hanging out with Kanye and Virgil, and then like more trouble there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was definitely like burning. Like real trouble or you're just mixing I mean, it up? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. what's real? What's <laughs> I don't know. What's, we, we can go there if you want. No, nah, it's, uh, yeah. All right. It's, it's, it's in the past. But you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're blazing a bright light, right? It like, was the, I mean, it, it sounds was, super cool. Like yeah. who doesn't want to go to fashion week with Kanye? You know, right. it sounds like you're, you're like living the life that everybody, you know, wishes they had. 
Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, like it's not sustainable. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> so anyways, I hadn't been running whatever. And so the marathon came up, but you had to get out of the city. You're like, yeah. I need a, I need a, like a little purge here. Well, it wasn't, it was like my kid and his mom moved to Seattle, all like the kind of landmarks and touchstones that I had were kind of like too filled with like memories of young fatherhood. So I didn't want to like deal with it. And then I was traveling so much that I was like, let me just put my stuff up in the country in like a safe house instead of like a overpriced apartment in Brooklyn. So when I come into town, I can just like hide out in the woods and then like go back out on the road again. Yeah, for like a trip. safe house, like safer stuff, but also like a legit safe, safe house. Like yeah. I'm getting out. Yeah. No, of course. I'm going to go hide. Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh -huh. Of course. Um, so yeah. And it's just like Superman. Like I tell you, like one night, like in the safe house, like in this town, just like revitalized me. I could come back like dangerous the next day. I'd be like, I'm back. <laughs> um, and it's still, it's still that way. And so, that's where you meet that dude right? Yeah, that right. you start training with. Just running one day I was out. I was lonely. I didn't, I didn't. And I just saw these guys like half a block away, but of course you can appreciate it. Like we were running the same pace. So I wasn't catching up on them. Right. I had to like, like drop that's not supposed to be happening. Right. And I'm like, ah, these guys aren't getting any closer. So I had to like drop the hammer to like catch up to these dudes. And then just imagine like <laughs> there are these white dudes and all of a sudden like a black dude just comes up to you like all sweaty sprinting. And it's like, <laughs> uh, -huh. uh, I didn't know what I was going to say. I was like, yo, I was following you. And they're like, so, yeah, and, right. um, so yeah, fast friendships were formed <laughs> in the instant. But um, yeah, so I came back from from wilding out uh, on the road and then ran New York City Marathon and like guys in the industry or guys in the streets in Brooklyn were like, well, what are you gonna do? I was like, yeah, I'm gonna get, uh, I'm gonna get top 100. And I got 100th place. Uh -huh. And the 100th place is the last name, when they print all the results of the New York Times, it's the last name on the first page. Yeah. That's a big deal. That's all anybody looks at. Right. You look at the first it's 10 like names. Billboard 100. And I got 100. And my name was right there on the front page. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, after that, like, things shifted. Like, people around New York and our kind of little creative community or even in the running, urban running community that was kind of like, again, hanging out on the sidelines, um, just tossing back margaritas, people are like, yo, you got a hundredth? I thought you were just like a guy. I thought you were one of us. And I'm like, no, I'm one of us. Look, we're drinking. I got seven inch shorts on. Everything's cool. And they're like, nah, 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 nah. What's up with this Yasso 800 workout? Is that for real? And I'm like, nah, man, that's uh -huh. fake. <laughs> so all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, like dudes, men and women were kind of like coming up, up and- for advice. Yeah, and I was like begrudgingly, you know, started kind of like giving it a little bit. And then also at the time, I, I kind of really had this idea to start, a, you know, a premium running magazine called First Run. Mm -hmm. And I ended up taking the last little bit of money that I had from the music business and spending it all to like shoot 80% of this magazine, <laughs> like flying in a photographer to shoot like Olympians at altitude in Mexico and like all this kind of stuff. And then when it came time to push the button, print, you know, at the print house or whatever, it was just kind of like, 
Instagram was more fun. Like I didn't want to like get tied into like selling ads and like, you know, chasing checks and like another meeting in Detroit trying to crack Big Auto for an ad, you know? Yeah. Magazine business is tough. Yeah. It's got to be tough. Really tough now. Yeah. I would go in, you know, shout out to anybody out there. I would definitely go in and like edit or, you know, publish, co-publish a a magazine because I still love it and I like know it like. Right in my heart of hearts. But the idea, the idea was really, I mean, this twist of like interviewing interesting people about their first run, but also really a running culture magazine, like looking at this intersection that we've already spoken about. And there, there is no magazine that exists like that. Cycling has a few magazines that mimic that, some of which still exist and some of which have gone away. Like Peloton was pretty, that was kind of like in the vein, right? Does that magazine still exist? Don't even know. I don't know if it's still around, but there isn't anything like nobody has created anything like that for running. Yeah, it's it's and awesome. People run and run and ride bikes. Yeah, and again, if you just think if you had this publication like on your coffee table as you're training for your first marathon or your your fiftieth, like a publication that uh, that feels like <clears throat> yeah, this person gets me. I have to under to say like in light of like political shifts and stuff coming to the fore, like in the Me Too era in the past year that I definitely see now is like my idea for a magazine was super limited. It was going to be, you have to be focused. Can't be everything to everybody, but it was very much like a loose, lush, like older bro, lavish premium experience for like rich dudes. Mm. It was an idea. (laughs) That's not me, (laughs) but it's in terms of like, who could I shovel this idea off onto, you know? Um, it wasn't like a, a super pluralistic Broad. thing, you know? Um, but those were my references at the time, like Purple Magazine and, and Olivier Zom and just kind of like these figures in like fashion and publishing on an editorial level. I wanted to create that, what I perceived to be that romance and that glamour that I also felt was running. Like if you hear about like Leo Manzano training at a high altitude training camp and he's like in the sauna afterwards or he's in the cooling jets, like that's an experience that like you feel a rich dude is trying to have as he's training for his marathon. Yeah. It made sense to me. Nike was coming out with their premium collection design in Japan and, you know, watches were getting more expensive and having features. There was just all these kind of things. And then you could also bring into cultural element to that. Yeah. Obviously it's something that Monocle magazine is probably always cooking up because it's very much that was part of the inspiration. Mm-hmm. And Tyler Brule, I guess, apparently is a big fan of runners running and has always said he wants to like do a running magazine. I think yeah. he, he's bringing a literary flair. Yeah. To the sport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also like a little fashion and style too, like being a little transgressive, like shot Leah Wallace for the cover of the first issue, and she was just kind of like, you know what? let me introduce a running magazine and let me put this like empirically beautiful black woman on the cover and be wearing like a USATF sweatshirt in the middle of the desert. And use like proper fashion photographers. Sure. To shoot yeah. elite athletes. Yeah. You know, again, another <laughs> impractical I like idea. I wish that magazine existed. I would, I yeah. like, I'd definitely buy it. Yo, cause my I'm fashion friends, like... my fashion <laughs> friends are like, what are you doing? And then elites are like, what are you doing? It was right. definitely oil and water. Missing every, yeah, like, yeah. I gotcha. It's, uh, and everyone, everyone dug it. And I like to think that, you know, that early thing kind of like helped proliferate some, some images and some visual language out there that I think people have picked up on. Yeah, yeah. I think they have. And so, so 
you make this decision not to go forward with the magazine. You put it all into Instagram, which is super cool. Like, you know, what you're doing with that is, uh, is amazing work. Um, and then with, with sort of the dispensing of advice with all these people who are like, tell me what to do, you, you start to cobble together just this group of people that ultimately becomes Black Roses. Yeah. Uh, we, a lot of us, a core of us were uh, running with New York City Bridge Runners, the legendary crew that yeah. kind of like kicked this whole movement off. Shout out to, to Mike, F- Mike Sace, the, the founder. Um, but yeah, like it was a running boom and in, in that era, people just had questions. People had a thirst for knowledge and they were either going to get it from the internet and they were either going to be running Yasuo 800s and then like crashing out in a marathon, or you could kind of like give them at least what I sensed was training. And so Black Roses NYC, when we started, um, wanted to have our cake and eat it too. It definitely is like set up around like a conservative traditional training schedule on a weekly level, but our conversations and, and our calculus is, is definitely at least half informed by culture. Yeah. And you don't call it a club. <laughs> no, don't even call it a club. I mean, yeah, it's funny. You're like, what could else? We-? No, but yeah, we call it a, it's uh, a collective. Is that what you call it? I like it? to call it a collective because uh-huh. the idea when we started, like everybody was going to pitch in and kind of contribute what they were bringing. You know, whether you were an art gallerist or a bartender or an out-of-work bartender or a fashion person or a photographer. And, and that has happened, you know, on a cultural level. But very swiftly, I also came to realize people like me were just trying to show up and, like, get inside and running and, like, mm-hmm. work on their running. So I got to, like, I got to I gotta serve that also. Yeah. Well, it has, you know, it's, I mean, it, it has the veneer of cool. Like, it's, you know, this is not, like, investment bankers like this is like the cool people you want to hang out with right like the art directors and the yeah you know graphic designers and the photographers and the musicians and out-of-work bartenders and the like i think yeah i think there might be a wall street guy who crept in just now uh-huh. <laughs> yeah but like he's a novelty right, right? and like, he, i think yeah. he's got like full tattoos like i've right. never seen him with a shirt on but yeah. like i, I kind of <laughs> I kind of think this tattooed uh, guy is like, you know, so yeah, yeah, so, you know, not in any filter or whatever. And I'm definitely on the side. I'm like a post 2008 crash guy. Like I left the banks and like work, you know, yeah. put my money in a credit union when I have it. But uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely not like Wall Street, you know, that type. So it is it is like a cultural outfit for sure. And why Black Roses? Uh, it comes from this uh, amazing reggae song, dancehall reggae song by Barrington Levy, Black Roses in My Garden. That's about the rarest flower that you never see. Uh, and so what does that mean in terms of what you're trying to cultivate? Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a call out to the kind of individual that comes into the squad. They're super diverse, um, all walks of life and people who didn't even know each other before. And like for some reason they something in them draws them to the squad. I <clears throat> was rather uncharitably the other day saying that like some kind of like flaw in them brings them to the squad. And someone's like, well, yeah, you have that too. I was like, no, I'm a nice guy. But, um, a I think like left of center in some way, definitely left of center. And, uh, a lot of times there've been people with like intense heartache that need healing and a distance running practice sometimes offers that. 
I'm definitely not a mental health professional and have learned the hard way that <clears throat> creating that context for people to explore their pain and come out on the other side is definitely not to be taken lightly. So that's something that I, I have had to revisit and kind of um, think about it a little more chastely. Um, but in the in that sense, it is sort of that kind of like pathos coming together to for for self improvement and the yeah. improvement of a group and a community. And that idea that the 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 black rose, this rare flower, needs to be taken care of or tended to with a little more attentiveness. Sure. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. <laughs> it's a it's an it's inspiration. Cool. It's an inspiration on tough when it's tough times. Like the song definitely very simply, you know, puts it out there for like, for what it is about, like mm -hmm. you got to water it. You know? Yeah. And at the same time, there is like, I mean, you had a bunch of people qualify for Boston, like it's legit training. Yeah. So no, it's, it's not just like, Hey, let's look at the street murals. No. Yeah. I laugh about yeah. it. Like, I, I, I feel like if you come in black roses, like the weird thing is, again, you're like a bartender. You could come around black roses and then like sit down with Galen Rupp and like talk about his training. Like I've just seen it happen bizarrely, you know? So you come through black roses and just my perspective and what I bring is informed by a handful of experiences and a handful of people. And I just like learned it, yeah. you know, from them in first person. And that's what I have to bring. I'm not like the kind of like organized coach with like a file on everybody and like the, desktop on the laptop churning out data, you know, but like I'm trying to feel, yeah. you know, I'm trying to feel my way through it. So can anyone show up or do you have to, is there some kind of vet? I mean, with your profile kind of getting more and more out there, you probably have a lot of people, probably too many people who want to be part of this. I'd like to think so. That's cool. Um, but like, that's not even my concern. Um, <clears throat> that's something I don't ever pursue. Uh, my default mode is not returning emails. So yeah. like, I don't think that I'm per I just, that's, you know, like you're not going to like crack a marathon by like emailing, you know, obviously I should be returning the emails, but um, it's getting harder these days. <laughs> it's rough. It's like, what happened? This was the savior. Now it's just like, um, but honestly, if you like come up, if you come out and show up, if you find us, that's cool. Right. So make it a little bit hard, like make people have to work to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And if they really want it, they'll, they'll figure it out. Yeah. The model yeah. is like, you, you, Oh, cool. Oh, I love green tea. Zen, Zen, Zen. I want to join a monastery. Cool. You want to join a monastery, fly to Japan, sit outside in the snow, outside the monastery gates for six right. days and wait. And then on the sixth day, they're going to open up the door and like, see if you're still there and be like, hey, like cool. the dude who is trying to get into fight club. It's it that exactly. Right. You know? Um, so yeah, it's, it, it draws its inspirations, you know, from like even my studies of East Asian religious philosophy when I was in school and trips to China and Japan, like, you know, that's, that's kind of like what it is. I do have like a certain kind of profile where I was a music journalist and all that, but <clears throat> also I translated Tang dynasty poetry and like speak Chinese and like definitely you speak Chinese. Yeah. I'm more Taoist than I'm like oh my God. Confucianist, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And I, I like to go out, like when I moved to this town and I could just show up and like take off the Saint Laurent suit and just get on the track. I like just 
showing up to the track and like pushing people past their zone and people aren't asking me like this or that. You yeah. Know? Well, I've heard you talk about this before, but I've had this experience myself, which is when you're, when you're with other people, when you're training, when you're working, it's, it never occurs to me to ask somebody like, Hey, what do you do? Like, what's your job? Like, it's just not part of the vernacular. And I don't know that whether that's just because there's some unifying principle around running in a collective group that brings people together on a different level where suddenly that just is not relevant. Um, but I think that's something that's, that's like really cool and special about that experience of, you know, group training. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I mean, there's a guy in the group now who was part of like a, like a raging hot indie band in London, like very recently, uh -huh. but like no one knew or something. Well, people who like that kind of music do, but the great thing about Black Roses is like, it's a super diverse group. Like one day, Malcolm Gladwell, cool with Malcolm, Malcolm came out, <clears throat> trained with us. Right. Awesome thing about Black Roses is like half the people are showing up and be like, oh, oh my God, what is that? And then the other people are like, yo, who's the dude in the orange jacket with the Afro? Who's his barber? <laughs> Malcolm gets on the track. We're doing like 12 by 400 He's or something. Fast. He tears through the group, uh -huh. <laughs> takes his shirt off. He's just running like guns out, like tearing up these 400s. And I like beating people up to this day about it. I was like, what was it like looking at Malcolm Gladwell's back before he dropped your ass? Right. Me? Like, you know, like, <laughs> what was it like your favorite author dropped you yeah. on the track? Like, not only is he smarter than you. Yeah. He dropped you. <laughs> <laughs> he put the hammer down yeah. on you. Malcolm Gladwell ran 456 at Fifth Avenue. What did you run? Okay. That's crazy. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 That's that must have been a moment. Yeah. 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 You know, that's, that's how that, that goes. I mean, but for me, like that experience is exactly the same as like Abdi calling me up or like kicking it with, with those guys and, or like hanging out with Elliot, you know, it's gotta be cool looking back at all these experiences that you get to have that are really a function of you making this decision. Like, Hey, I love this thing. I'm going to invest in it because there's no clear career path. Like, Hey, Oh, I was a music manager. I ran a marathon. I did pretty good. Yeah. But like, you're not a pro athlete. You're not, you know, but you've been able to create this thing out of whole cloth based on your passions. Yeah. I would like to, I love that. I have um, like a lot of young people kind of like follow me on Instagram for inspiration. Cause you know, when I quit running in the nineties <clears throat> in college, like, what did you do? And I still feel like that's the same for like a lot of young people. Like if you don't get the college scholarship, do you keep running? Like how, how would you, if you were in high school on the track team, maybe you were good, maybe you weren't, whatever you didn't get a scholarship. Like, how did you, how would you keep running? Like, what are, what's the catchment? What's the s safety net for kids to keep pursuing something that hopefully that they love you you're a d1 athlete or d3 athlete or juke or whatever how do you how do you keep doing it if you want to or even if you don't how could you like touch on that inspiration and i like showing young people that there's like an older dude who loves it and like loving it can mean like linking up with ricky gates and like jamming in the rockies for for six days straight mm -hmm. you know i feel that i feel i feel like when I see who's digging on it, high school elites and college elites, I'm like, yeah, there's something you can do like after this if you don't pick up a pro contract, you know? 
where do you want to take this? Like, where do you think about what you want it to become or do you just show up for the you gotta, experience? Yeah. Like this, this moment, it's, it's, it's tough. Like, cause seasons change, you know? And so <clears throat> I got to think about what my next moves are and, and all that. And so I definitely do hope it, 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 be, it, it changes, you know? Um, but man, like two years ago, I went up and pff, again, I visited Bernd Heinrich at his cabin in Maine, like mm. typical approach. I drummed up his email off like an obscure university website, emailed him and like Bernd Heinrich, like wrote me back. It's like, sure, we'd be delighted to host you. And I just drove up with my son and a photographer, like showed up to the cabin yeah. and like stayed and like my son bonded with Bernd Heinrich uh-huh. and like caught frogs with Bernd Heinrich and like went home with tadpoles and like now Bernd Heinrich sends books to my son. That's pretty cool. So when you think about someone like that, who's like made a career of writing and has been passionate about running his whole life and has kept that through, I like to think of it like that. Hopefully Mm -hmm. that I'm setting up enough sort of, or I'm riding enough waves that I can kind of continue doing what I'm doing as a, as a, a, as a rock on tour, as yeah. a storyteller. Another reason why you got to write this book, man. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold you to it. I need to, please, please. Um, all right, we gotta wrap this up and close it down. But um, I want to end it with one uh, question. The uh, Tokyo video that you did opens with a line, a voiceover line from you, which is, "Running is an act of rebellion." So. It would be great if you could kind of explain that to round this thing out. Nobody wants you to run. You're supposed to just be a digit. You're supposed to just be like a cipher. You're just supposed to be like a one or a zero in the code. You're not supposed to like have your own volition. You're not supposed to get out and like think for yourself. You're not supposed to like feel. You know, and running is like the first and the most crucial thing, aside from getting up in the morning, that like you can actually feel. It may be good, it may be bad, it may be hot, it may be cold, it may be hard, it may be easy, it may be like endorphin based, and it may be just like <laughs> rage inducing. But like running is our one of our oldest tools. Um, and it's there for all of us <clears throat> at our disposal to to feel and uh feeling is is free and feeling is freedom and so when i say it's rebellion it's a way to throw off all our pressures and all our expectations and all the sort of like lies that other people have sold us and all the lies that we tell ourselves all our self-hatred and our self-doubt and all our minimizing you know all our whack relationships and bad dates and like mistakes that we've made in the past, whether that was last night or last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, running as a chance to, 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 to do something new. And so that is rebellion. Um, when given the choice between running and succumbing to that vortex. I think you just wrote the forward to your book. (laughs) Right there, man. That was beautiful. Thank you. It's good talking to you, man. Thank you for having me. This is super special. Yeah, cool. 
Um, if you want to connect with Knox, the best way to do that is probably... Email. Oh, yeah, send him an email. <laughs> He'll probably read it, but he's not going to email oh, you back. Oh, of course I'm reading that shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Instagram, right? Yeah. First run First on Instagram. Run. Yes. Anywhere else? That's oh, it. If, you wanna, if you're in New York City, Come you're spinning out. vinyl, right, in Brooklyn? Um, uh, yeah. On Sunday nights, or when does this happen? Once a Sunday a month okay. from like 2 to 5 p.m. Uh-huh. <laughs> at a great uh, reggae bar called Lover's Rock in Bed-Stuy. Come through. Um, but I'm around, man. I'm like, I'm in the streets for better or for worse. I'm like, I'm with the people. So, you know, wherever they bees at, that's where I'm a bees that's at. That's where you're going to be. Yeah. Cool, man. Awesome. Great talking to you. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Peace. I would say super cool are two words that come to mind. My heart is full. I just love that exchange. I could have kept going on with him for hours and hours longer. And I really hope that uh, you connected with Knox as much as I did. Uh, Definitely wanna have him back on the podcast at some point. Oh, and um, this was obviously recorded before Kipchoge crushed the marathon world record in Berlin. Knox ran that race as well. So how cool was that to hear him talk about hanging out with Elliot? Very cool. Anyway, let Knox know how this one landed for you. Hit him up on Instagram at first run and you should all follow him there as well. His posts are always beautiful and thought provoking. As always, check out the show notes on the episode page at richworld.com to expand your experience of today's conversation beyond the earbuds. And if you are looking for additional nutritional guidance, you don't know how to cook, you don't like cookbooks, you're trying to get more plant-based, you're plant curious, but you're not sure where to start, check out the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. There you will find thousands of plant-based recipes, totally customized based on your personal preferences, unlimited grocery lists, grocery delivery in most metropolitan areas, and amazing customer support seven days a week from experts, people who really know what they're talking about, ready to answer all of your questions, no matter how frivolous. And you get all of this for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. To learn more and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu on my website. If you would like to support the work that we do here on the podcast, share it with your friends, your favorite episode, put it on social media, whatever. Hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you enjoy this content. And I appreciate you. I wanna thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering production, show notes, interstitial music, Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for graphics, DK for sponsor relationships and theme music as always by Analemma. Thanks for the love you guys. I will see you back here next week with another incredible episode. Who's going up next week? Let me look at my calendar. Hold on a second here. We have, ooh, Jedediah Jenkins. He was on the show three years ago. I just recorded an episode with him yesterday. And uh, oh my God, I love that guy. What an amazing human. Uh, That's a really good one. So you have that to look forward to. It will publish on September 30th, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Until then, get out and go for a run. Peace plants. Namaste. Yeah.